Hi folks and welcome back to the Reload Podcast. My name's Connor McCann and with me is Lee Maxwell. Nigel Lamont. This is episode 12. It's actually really weird to think that there's 12 episodes of this out already and people are still listening to us and we've got another good one for you today. Even if it wasn't good, I would say that because I have to. We can't be running ourselves <laughs> down. No, uh, definitely not. Start off with a bit of good news for once and for a change at the minute. And that is a big shout out to listener Bert and his new wife, Lucinda, who got married today. Woo! Congratulations, guys. Congratulations. Anyone who follows the podcast on the Instagram page to see Bert, he shares a lot of our stuff and he protects and sends in messages. So those guys were traveling around. I thought it was absolutely awesome. He was traveling around the world listening to us three idiots talking. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. Strange to think. So he's been listening to Reload Podcast in Bali, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast has been further than we have. So yes, well done to them. And it looks like they actually managed to get a good day in Northern Ireland, which was an interesting one. Yeah. Um he's been working at his Mark V again, which is absolutely mental. It's full like satin grey respray. BBSs are Super R S nineteen. Super R S is, yeah. Um full red leather interior and like everything's done and an absolutely mental turbo diesel build in it which even i will admit is pretty cool and we all know that i hate diesels complete coal monster that's what it is it is and it gets used and abused which is great to see going back to our last episode there was a question from ronan hickey he had mentioned about a diff for his vr6 now turbo build and we kind of talked about quaff wave track and other ones and we weren't 100 percent sure nigel you had both in your cars yeah yeah and my knowledge stops at the instruction manual yeah a bit like my own <laughs> and then we had a message from paul mcgrath and he messes in to say that the wave track is actually a more advanced diff so he says it's a unique feature where it still drives the undriven wheel when there's zero load on the wheel a regular torque bias diff like a Quaif or Pelican can only do its job when there's at least some load. So if a wheel is off the ground on ice or oil, it becomes an open diff. I hope that makes sense, which, yeah, it does. Basically, the wave track has built-in witchcraft. Yeah, there's more witchcraft <laughs> than, the, than the rest of them. <laughs> he did say as well that he has no bias towards either one because he doesn't deal with either of the companies or anything like that. So he's it's a totally unbiased opinion where generally people who buy one will always fight for the one that they have bought because supposing you're spending upwards of a thousand pound you don't want to seem like you've spent the wrong thing yeah so we'll just get stuck straight in guys then and move on to the news for this week yeah, yeah let's see what's happening because i don't sweet fm my cars in the last fortnight you know so <laughs> yeah i've just been well there's no point in talking about what i've done to the car because it's been the same thing weld 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 grind 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 typical mark three yeah i think you're that, the same that, lee that mark three life Oh, always <laughs> the first big news and a lot of this is big including the grills is the release of the 4 series from BMW horrific yeah, yeah I don't even know where to go with this the thing is horrendous looking they've like they've, they've outdone themselves on the grill thing I think listener Buster Conrad this evening nailed it with his Bugs Bunny meme he put up yes was, I, I'd just seen that before <laughs> we sat down to record and it was fantastic I can kind of see where they're going. If you look at some of the old, like the M cars, like the shark nose type stuff, the grill is taller than it is wide. They've kind of lost their way with this, though. Yeah, someone has said, someone said, make it taller than it is wide, and they've just went, okay. <laughs> 2020 is definitely the end of the world. First, there was Australian forest fires or bushfires. Then right. there's COVID, Epstein affairs. 
Who didn't um, kill himself? No, no. We have the four series BM. Like, what's next? Are the aliens coming? Um, I know that they talked about murder hornets. I'd have took the murder hornets <laughs> over the over the, these grills. Like, I don't know what angle you're meant to look at that four series and go, hmm, I like that. No, even like a walk around the car, the rear quarters, the rear quarter panels look like an A5. Like, and they look like an early A5. The back lights look like they stole them off an Alpha. The front end looks like. Do you know how Lexus, it's kind of went like, a, they look like Predator. Yeah, the big like open big mouth. open thing. <laughs> that, that's the way it's went for me. Um, I'm being very restrained there, but I have made notes here and I've wrote just asterisks and I just wrote fugly beside it. So, yeah, that sums, yeah, that, that sums that up. That's, um, probably, that's probably the code word they used for it when they were building it. Do you know what the odd thing is? People cried sore about the concept car for the, the Supra. People loved it and were like, oh, this is unbelievable. You know, th- this is what they're going to build. And then, as typically what happens, they wash it down, wash it down, and you kind of get like this watered-down version of what they've told you. In this case, BMW had the giant grills on the concept car, and they continued through with it. So the one time you want something to carry through from a concept car, or not carry through from the concept car, it did. It's, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, the other thing about the grills, I, I, this is very grill-focused, and I hate this car so much, and you might be able to tell by how passionate I'm talking about it here, but they actually put... Like the release car, they put a front number plate on it, and it, it kind of dulls the grills down, which you kind of think, okay, in the UK, we're going to have a front plate on it, so it'll yep. be fine. But look at the US. You go over there, a lot of those states don't run a front plate, and you're going to have this big predator open mouth thing coming at you and thinking, what? imagine meeting that in the road. <laughs> what's, um, that com- what's that coming towards me? I, you could drive into it like a tunnel. <laughs> um, people screaming and crashing into the side of the road. Starting price is just under 40 grand for the diesels. I really hope no one buys them. So don't even listen to that price. Don't worry and about it. Because they we won't. Have, but we have criticized that people will buy them in their droves. They won't, but the Chinese will buy them, which is the whole point. Yeah, this definitely has to be geared towards the Chinese market. It's, I think the Chinese market's now the, the biggest yeah, car that's buyer what they're going base. For. Um, they don't really care what we think anymore. No. Yeah, there, there um, seems to be a pattern now of. German manufacturers going very blingy to meet what the Chinese want now. In their, yeah, the their needs designs. of that market. To be honest, it does seem a well-spec car. You know, they've all their diesels, six-cylinder petrols, are doing a mild hybrid version. LED front lights, LED rear lights, although I think that's fairly common in most new cars now. Yeah. Oddly, I always thought a four series was now the two-door three series. This is like, up, they all have upgraded suspension compared to the 3 Series, even the lower models. So I don't know where they're going with that. But it's definitely an ugly duckling. Like I, the funny thing is, you go onto the like NIBMW, the Facebook page, all our local guys, and they're so passionate about BMs and they'll slobber about Audi. And we go on and give them a bit of grief and they'll, they'll give bit us of, grief bit back. A bit of banter, a bit of friendly banter. Yeah, yeah. Some of it's friendly, some of it's not. I tend to go on and wind them up a bit. <laughs> but like, even they're all saying, this is horrendous, this car is terrible. And so many of them have said, I might have to defect to the other side and then shudder Audi. <laughs> <laughs> so th- things are bad in BMW's camp. But at the same time, the new 5, five Series, it's it's lovely looking. I haven't actually seen it. I did yeah. see the last 5 Series, which was quite nice. And I welcome, 
Oh, it was welcome over that. Was it the E60 that looks no, like a maybe? Yeah, the I'm front? thinking of the old five series. Then I'm not up to speed in BMW. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not sure myself. <laughs> They're maybe getting the four series to get us ready for the horrific grill invasion of the three series and the five series. If BMW can build an uglier car than the four series at the moment, fair play to them. Have at it because I I don't know where to start. I sometimes think to myself, is this just a PR exercise? You know, is this just everybody's well, talking about? It's a very expensive one because they built the cars. <laughs> just went ahead with it. <laughs> it's like that kind of that joke that went wrong and just continued on. <laughs> just a quick look at car sales. Obviously, because of COVID, car sales are down. May figures were released there, and they're eighty nine percent down in the UK, down from one hundred eighty thousand last year to twenty thousand in May. Obviously, some drop. Yeah, there was only four thousand sold in April, but I've just. Watching some YouTube channels, click and collect seems to be the way now. And a lot of dealers are offering you can come and collect it or they'll deliver it to your house. It's just a, it seems to be the way people are buying their cars now. Test drives aren't as important anymore. People want a car, they want it. Test drive's not going to really turn them that much. I was speaking to one of our listeners there, I think it was last night. Guy in the US, I won't mention his name just in case it's not 100% with it, but he's a sales guy and he's very good. He's like, you know, top of his area, you know, he's this guy has no problem selling stuff. And he was saying that he now is preferring to sell things like contactlessly. So yeah. like contact them, do a walk around. He says and he is actually less bother with people. You know, you less oh. suppose if you can't go and kick tires, it's not the same kick doing it virtually, so you're not gonna bother as much. No, one of the one of the YouTube guys that was I was watching, it was I think it was Gravelwood car sales, and one of the guys was that and he was basically saying a lot of my customers are brand loyal. So they're just changing the next model anyway. They know what they're getting. A test drive isn't going to change their mind. Now, there yeah. is a certain percentage of the population that always want a test drive, but he says it's becoming increasingly smaller and smaller. People require a test drive. It, it, yeah, boils, down, it right. boils down to the finance deal now, he says. It also boils down to the fact that, and we, like Lee and I have talked about this before, there is no really such thing now as a bad car. No. The manufacturers they wouldn't get away with putting something out that drives like an absolute bag of shite. Yeah. So... You know, a, lot of, you, a lot of manufacturers now are offering bigger and bigger or lengthier warranties to sort of compensate, you know. That's right, yeah. I would have to test drive a car, but... For the miles that you do, yeah, certainly. I, the, yeah, because the main thing for me is I have to go and sit in the seat and think, can I sit in this for five and six hours at a time? You know, take it on a good long drive, see what it does. But I, I suppose for somebody who's just tiddling in the town to work and... Yeah, somebody like me, you drive six mile to work. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. You could sit on a, a milk crate if you wanted. One thing, this is a real silly thing, but I have said in my next car when I go to change it, my car has a little vent on the A pillar that That's comes right. on with the air conditioning. That's right, yeah. But it only comes on, I think, with the screen or possibly the feet air conditioning, but it's, you know, it's not on all the time, but it comes on with one of the settings uh-huh. and it, I hate it. Because just the way it points, points right at my thigh where I sit in the seat and you have like this wee cold spot on your leg and it really, <laughs> really irritates me. And it's, you, you know, one of those stupid things that you never think of until you do. I'm just imagining you, know, you going for your emergency break and you're, <laughs> you've got pins and needles and in your leg. my leg's cold. <laughs> but because, you know, when I'm working, I'm wearing like wee thin suit trousers or something and I'm like I always have this little cold spot just one little spot on my leg and I really hate it and I have actually been tempted to stick something over yeah. it because it really annoys me you can tell that Lee sits 
in the car for five hours at a time and nothing else to think about. Only this is driving me absolutely mental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, continuing on then from that kind of topic about car sales, Aston Martin announced they're laying off 500. Bentley are laying off 1,000. We yeah. could probably see a lot more in the months to come, it's looking like. I would say there'd be more industries with a similar sort of thing. I'm keeping an eye on that. Especially with the push now, a lot of companies are pushing the work from home, that cars will not be as That's relevant. That's also true. Yeah, yeah, I never thought yeah. of that. Well, there's a friend of my wife's. She works for basically the government, Stormont, and they got told a week ago that they could expect to work at home for the next year. I would say, I think because we Because they've been operating before. perfectly fine. Um, yeah, like, what's the difference? Why not? Yeah. My job doesn't allow me to work at home. You know, what I do wouldn't work. I'd need really long arms. But if I could work at home, and if I had a desk job and I could work at home, I would happily do it because the saving on fuel for most people, you know, is Yeah, is or great. train or bus or whoever you get to work to sit at a desk that with the internet and infrastructure and stuff that we have now, it doesn't matter where you are for you certain do, jobs. Yeah. Like loads of guys work remotely in a van or in a car. With a, you do, Lee, a lot yeah. of your stuff on, you know, on a laptop. Car sales in the toilet, um, jobs going. It's all sunshine and roses, basically, yeah. in the car car front. Can, can we go back to Bert getting married? <laughs> yeah, let's go back there. <laughs> that was good. I've got more doom and gloom here about we'll, we'll uh, stolen cars, early. if you want to move on to that topic. <laughs> oh, well, doom and gloom was enough for the, uh, the 4 Series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was on YouTube probably a week ago. We'll say probably end of May, start of June. Just depends when you're listening to us. I first seen it through the Adam Ivel. He's an English YouTuber, his YouTube channel. And it was basically talking about a Japanese... Um, he brings cars in, but he also brings in front clips of cars, parts, engines. Uh, it's a company called J-Spec. And they're uh-huh. based in, I think it's the East Coast of America, but they also it is. have... I can't remember what state, but yeah, you're right. And they also have a place in Toronto, Canada, I think it is. And basically, he's advertising stuff that's been stolen a month ago in Japan. J-Spec company basically got called out. People with cars, they're basically, look at that car, that's my car, because they're front clips with all the the individual little lights, special clips, stuff like that. So you can't argue it's not that person's car. Yeah, the one that I seen was a... Like an EK Civic. I think it was a yep. facelift EK yep. Civic. A white one. Yeah. Yeah. And it had like a real distinctive bonnet. It wasn't a standard bonnet. It was an aftermarket one. You know, this thing had been stolen in Japan, say, roughly a month ago. Suddenly the front end appears in America on this guy's website. You could turn around and say, if it was a totally standard EK9 front end, you could turn around and say, well, maybe it's it, but you don't really know. But Could when be it, anything, yeah. Yeah. But when it's a distinctive car with custom parts or aftermarket parts on yep. it, it has to be it. Like, there's no other way around it. Well, as Adam goes on, he says, you see one person coming up going, here, that's my car. Yeah. But then the thread just becomes filled after a few hours or a day or so of other people going, that's, and going to other cars that are for sale or parts for sale and going, here, that's my car. I think it was an S15. It was an RAN Pretzer or something like that. Uh-huh. There must have been about 10 or 15 cars. And they basically linked the stolen car pictures and they had, they had individual parts on them that made it abundantly clear or maybe they were a special color. And it was basically, that's my car. I then went and watched another channel, Your Car Bro, mm-hmm. an American guy. And he really went to town in the detail of it. And he done a bit of investigating. Okay. And Jay Speck came out with a statement basically saying, we pride ourselves in sourcing sourcing our 
parts and cars, um, basically washing their hands of it and saying, oh, it's not our fault. We use the best suppliers of parts and all this sort of carry on. Well, your man, your car bro, looked into who owned the company in Canada and looked who they were getting supply off. And the supplier in Japan, lo and behold, was the guy that owned Jace back. God forbid. Yeah. So it was like the Spider-Man meme. When your man made the statement, <laughs> yeah, going, at each other. Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, um, I remember that happening here years ago. Like I'm talking when I first yeah. started to drive, maybe oh. 14 years ago. Well, 20 years ago in Balamoni, there was Eddie Torrens. He he brought in front clips. Now, 20 years ago, the market was awash with Jap cars being imported. Yeah, Parts were plenty. You didn't cheap. think twice of a front clip being brought in because in Japan, there was loads of them. But now, 20 years on, if you see somebody bringing a front clip of a relatively rare car in, no accident damage, I'm sorry, but you've got to ask a few questions. Yeah, if it's not absolutely mega money, you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, you know, where does that come from? Where, why is it cheap? It's like buying stolen tools. If you buy anything like that knowingly, knowing that it's stolen, you're as bad as the person stole it, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of YouTubers in the East Coast of America sort of looking a bit awkward because I think they have bought a few engines from J-Spec in the past. Saying that, if they don't know, you know, that's fair enough. There's not really much they can do about it. If J-Spec are a, a set-up, established company, you know, you kind of have to think, well, you know, you're not going to Tesco's and thinking, did they, did they steal these groceries kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, that's, that's true. That's but, true. At the same time, you wouldn't like to think that you're running about with somebody else's parts, knowing what, right how you would feel yourself. No, if yeah. you buy something from some dodgy guy, you know, off the back of a lorry or whatever, you know what you're buying. But if you're buying from what you think is supposed to be a reputable company, you think you're doing the right thing. Yeah. I bought a TV once at the roundabout at Moira. That's 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 my biggest dodgy purchase. <laughs> Did you ever tell the story of the VR6? <laughs> me when we went to buy the vr6 oh god i i <laughs> my my green car the the mark 3 is a it originally was an eight valve gti i converted yep. it stefan and i converted it oh i can't even remember six or seven years ago maybe one christmas and i think it was i think it was actually gethin that put me on to this guy to buy the engine or somebody that he knew knew this guy and we went down to buy it and the first comical part of it was that we stopped in Dremore. For anyone listening that doesn't know Dremore, it's essentially a tiny country village full of backwards people. And the cash machine, I went up, it was £250. I was like, okay, I'll pull this out of the cash machine. And it would only give me £50 at a time. I was like, well, this is weird, but okay. So I hit the button, 50 quid. It spat it out in £5 notes. I was like... <laughs> like, what cash machine have you ever been to that even would give you a fiver? Yeah, I like... It's weird. I don't know, maybe I'm rich, but I don't even deal in fivers. I couldn't tell you the last time I'd seen a fiver. There's maybe a different exchange rate on the in the Dremore Dremore town. That's probably so you can go and buy a bottle of Buckfast. It's a separate state. Um, so <laughs> cue me pumping the card in five times to get five lots of £50. So I come out with literally £250 worth of £5 notes. At that much, in a, su- in even a suitcase, it. dragging yeah. it along. I felt like a, I feel like I was doing a drug deal. Come along, I was like, "There you go, mate. There's your, there's the money." So we got there, and this guy brought this thing out on was it on a trailer? And it looked like it had been stolen. I we did we have a trailer with us? Yeah, we had a trailer with us, and we had to transfer it from one trailer to the other, which was fun. Yeah. And uh, it like he cut through. Like he took the front end off the car. So anybody who's ever worked on a Mark Three, there's about eight bolts that'll remove the front end 
No, you don't need to take those bolts out when you have a power saw. So he just cut the whole front off for the, the saw. Nice. Cut and the he, bumpers in half, cut all the wires, didn't unplug any of the wires out of the fuse box or the loom, just cut them, yeah. just cut everything. Uh, cut the so, radiator hoses, cut the front like he, panel. Sounds like he served his time in Quigs and Rasharkin. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're known for that too. But yeah, it was only for the fact that I, when I got talking to the guy and then we knew other people and I asked about him, it turned out it wasn't dodgy. He's actually a, He's a Vauxhall guy who thought he would try his hand at something different with Volkswagens and then get into it and didn't like it. And then decided to take the saw to it, apparently. <laughs> he was a nice guy, like, really, but it was, was a very yeah. strange evening. <laughs> yeah, he set fire to himself shortly after that. What? Yeah, he was oh, welding. Like in a war protest type thing? No, um, a stupidity protest. <laughs> he he was welding. He was welding and... As you do be, like he was well known at cars. The guy he's big into his BMs and stuff, and he, I think uh, this is this is years ago, so I can't remember. I had him on Facebook, and he lifted what he thought was water, and it was petrol, and threw it over it, and it just went up. Oh shit! Holy shit! Yeah. Now he wasn't burnt to the fact that he was disfigured. He, he was burnt. He burnt his arms and things like that. You know, and he got like, you know, I'm saying he was okay, but I wouldn't like to have it happen myself. But yeah, he got a bad oil burning. So, as you do on a Saturday night, you don't go near A&E. He went and drank a bottle of vodka and then went to A&E the next day. Like a real man. <laughs> There's not many men left like that. No, they don't build them like that anymore. <laughs> oh, dear. It's merely yeah. a flesh wound. Is not the Monty Python? Like? It is, yeah. <laughs> it is about a scratch. <laughs> so, yes, we've got way off topic there, but yeah. Um, so, that's, that's news, yeah? Um, yeah, just tagging on to the end. I was watching Jamie Orr's live streams that he's doing. He's doing doing the most nights. And he had Tanner Faust on there last week. And he was talking about he's actually working in the development of the Golf Mark 8R. Oh, very good. So, yeah. And I know we've kind of talked a lot of crap about the Mark 8. And me personally, I don't think, still don't think it's a great looking car. But it's he says Hyundai. it's such it's a Hyundai. It really is. But he says it's such a good driving car, you know, and he's he's involved with setting the car up and development and tweaking of it. And there's a possibility the shots that we shared from the Nürburgring could have been him because it was in Germany. He was testing it. Mm-hmm. But it's cool to hear some feedback from like there's a high end race car driver is developing this car. Yeah, that is cool. So moving on then with a one or two YouTube topics to talk about as well. Do you want to start off there, Nigel? Yeah. Driftworks channel. Phil Morrison, one of the co-owners of Driftworks, put out an interesting video. He is doing a lot of work on his 964RWB and he decided he wanted to put ceramic brakes on it and refused to pay the £10,000 second hand you would pay for the recent sort of ceramic brakes on uh, 911s. Well, I can't so, say I blame him for that. No, uh, I, I wouldn't pay any more than eight personally and definitely not. <laughs> this man has just, I've probably talked about it a million times, some crazy projects in the go, the Lamborghini uh, on throttle bodies. He has the E30, he has he's bought back his old E46 M3 with the M5 engine on it that he's restoring now. That's awesome. But every so often you get a wee bit of 964 stuff, and this video was basically him mixing matching a ceramic setup. I forget the exact details, but he basically got a bits and pieces set up to make ceramic brakes from various models. I forget, I think the discs were from a 997 ceramic disc or something, and then calipers from something else. So then he decided, right, I'm going to have to make these fit. So he decided to make his own adapters 
because of the way the caliper was. It wasn't just a case of a flat adapter plate. Mm-hmm. So he then got a bit of oak and started fashioning an adapter. As you do. <laughs> bit of uh, sanding and cutting. Whittling it down um, like a World War II prisoner of war. Yeah. I thought he was making a Morgan car at one point. <laughs> um, Chassis leg for it. But here, um, got it nailed down. And then they, them guys have their own 3D printer. And he's been making a lot of 3D printers. He made Venturi stacks for his Lamborghini using that. That's cool. And he basically, trial and error, I think it was the fourth prototype uh, 3D print. He got it spot on. And he ha- has the brakes set up. They fit under the, I forget what wheels they are. They're probably... Um, work wheels of some description he got it nailed down so now he has that design on the cad file and he'll send it off to the aluminium guy to make him adapters i thought it was really really cool he was able to do that now it, i think it took him ridiculous amount of time going by the video but it's just something i bet I it didn't found, take I, 10 grand's worth of time though yeah i just i just thought that's nice to see somebody who obviously has a lot of money because two weeks ago he put a video up um band back his old 911 gt3 He's got the yeah. money, but he's a very hands-on mechanic type guy. I think it's because two of his best friends are very, very highly skilled mechanics. It's interesting there to see as well. You mentioned they're making the adapters out of wood. That's a really old-school way. You'd see like hot rod guys making the adapters, making sure everything works, and then transferring it to steel. But then yeah. for to take it into combine that with new technology, like 3D printing, so you yeah. have your rough work, 3D printed. See, does it bolt up? It does. Yep, go for it. Make it in alloy or steel or whatever you need i think it's got a lot to do with the fella who does a lot of his work for him there's an older guy i forget the name of the company it's it's busy next door to driftworks he does some mental mental conversions and stuff i think he's learned it off him a lot of his skills so it's good to see him you know i'll tell you what though that's the guys you need to learn from the old school guys or yeah like they've been there and done it mechanics are becoming more and more fitters rather than fixers yeah, uh, I have a few mechanic friends. I like to remind them of that, just wind them up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm any better than they are. <laughs> yeah. So what did you see on YouTube? Anybody? Uh, YouTube then, I suppose it's kind of, I don't know if it's more YouTube or news or even maybe just like a general topic as such, but Rywire are a company in, in the US and they specialize mostly in Honda stuff. So they've been around for years doing like Honda looms. You know, they'll do like, they do actually race car looms and things like that for Lamborghinis and for high-end Hondas, but they also do like shave bay tuck type of looms too. They do radiators, all that kind of parts. And your guy, Ryan, who runs it, he's been at it for years and years. He's built some amazing things, but he's kind of turned his hand to something new now. And he's building a, an electric S2000 called the EV2K. So he's putting the full Tesla running gear into the, the S2000. So if he there's has one thing an S2000 doesn't need, it's more power. Yeah. They're twitchy, they're twitchy <laughs> enough as it is. They're actually, yeah, people joke about Honda's been torqueless wonder horses, but the S2000 is actually quite torquey. It is a good driving car. So he has admitted himself. He says like it'll not be his usual standard of build as in like everything clean, tidy, tucked. You know, he says it can't be, and especially because it's new. But what caught my eye about it more is the fact that a company like this who are... Not so much set in their ways, but they definitely have a very niche item. Are looking at the future and branching into doing something for like electric swaps and other cars. Mm-hmm. That like there's no middle ground. It seems to be guys at home are lumping electric stuff into old cars, or you can go and pay a hundred grand for a company to do it for you. And there's no middle ground. So maybe the likes of this happening is going to be like you can go to Rywire and say, "I'm building this. 
I'm putting this into it. Can you make me a loom? And they send the stuff out. It's the way things are going. I think it's, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's inevitable in some cases. You know, is, is that the start of the aftermarket looking towards EV swaps? You know, yeah, that's changing your batteries up, changing your voltage up to get more power. Yeah. Are we going to see electric Mark 1s, Mark 2s? You know, people put TDIs in them, that kind of thing. Why not? Funny, I just remembered there now when you're talking about that. Um, Throttle, the YouTube channel. They, yeah. They're guys that are sort of knocking about with, uh, what do you call them? TJ Hunt. They built a fully electric, what was it now? Was it was it an MR2 or a 370? I think it was a I think it was a 370 Nissan, and they went to a company that's doing full electric Tesla conversions on any car. Ah. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, it was interesting to see the way they done it. Yeah, it's maybe a glimpse into the future how things are going, as you say. I think a lot of the a lot of the retrofits are still retaining the, the original gearbox because they kind of want the customer to have the feel of the original car. So if you have like an old 911. You still want to kick it through gears, you know, where it doesn't really need it, but they have it there. Like you could put, you put that thing in fifth gear. As long as the clutch will take it, it'll it'll pull. Yeah, I think that'll finish us up for news and YouTube's then this week. Okay, just before we move on to the main topic in this week's episode, just like to remind you that the podcast is sponsored by Reload Global. Have a look across on the website. It's Reload Global. We provide all sorts of accessories and clothing to do with eighties and nineties motorsport. 21st of June is Father's Day. So if your dad's into retro cars, have a look on there. You might be able to pick him up something to treat him for Father's Day. Okay, then. So this episode's main topic is Skunk Works projects. You might have heard us talk about this a few episodes back. And the Oxford Dictionary describes it as an experimental lab or department of a company typically smaller than or independent of its main research division. So the term was first came about during World War II and was coined by Lockheed, who are now Lockheed Martin, for the development group. Since then, it has been widely adopted term across most industries, if not all. So this basically is us going to talk to you about cars that either just about made it or didn't make it. You know, things that went on behind the scenes that maybe didn't start out with... Secret, secret. secrets. Didn't start off totally legit, shall we say. The first car on the list then traces its origins back to... Not a product design committee, but a group of enthusiastic individuals working on their own unofficial product. Two of the main names involved in development engineer were Alphonse Lohenberg and PR director Anton Conrad, both Volkswagen guys and both in strong motorsports backgrounds. Lohenberg came from working at Opel's experimental motorsport department and arrived with new ideas. He said, the more I knew about Volkswagen's products and development, the more I intended to introduce my motorsport knowledge. Unfortunately for him, Volkswagen had released four new models in the past three years and the recent oil crisis, which actually had forced motorways to be closed on Sundays, it was that bad, meant engineers had to talk more about fuel consumption and less about racing. The official line was that no one was to be involved in sports cars. That was coming from the top of Volkswagen. Lohenberg was unimpressed and he was convinced that the pre-production Golf had the makings of a competitive rally car. So this was the time they were crossing in from the Beetle into the Golf. And having read a bit about this in the background and even just years and years ago, they had an awful time of trying to develop a car that went from air-cooled, rear-engined, rear-wheel drive to a front-engined, transverse, water-cooled. It was just an absolute mess of a time for them. So I suppose someone poking their nose in with these new and radical ideas wasn't great for them. March 1973 then, seen Lohenberg write a memo to six senior managers, including Dr. Fela, who we heard from in our last VR6 episode. 
head of car trials, Ferdinand Goes, Anton Conrad, as previously mentioned, a manager of passenger car development, Herman Hablitz. I'm going to butcher all these names. <laughs> Try your best with these names, Connor. It must be difficult. I've got a, I've got a few tongue twisters to, to talk about here, too. I, I can hardly speak English. Never mind, read these. In this memo, then, he had listed sporty car models with similar power-to-weight ratio as the 1.5 Golf they planned to make, which were no longer built, like the BMW 2000, Opel Cadet, and NSU Prince. Calling it the Sport Golf, he suggested building it to meet FIA Group 1 spec, including a 1600cc 100-horsepower engine, 5-speed box, oil coolers, vented disc brakes. It was to encourage private motorsport entries. The memo received mixed reviews, though, and with Fela not been overly fussed with it, but Habitzel loved it. <laughs> I'm going to have to change that man's name. With no official backing, though, he took it upon himself, and he set up an unofficial work group led by Lohenberg, comprising of specialties in wheels, tyres, suspension and bodywork. Anton Conrad, he joined them and he was going to be their link to marketing when the time came. During this time then, when they were building essentially what was a secret car, all the special parts for the sport golf that they were building were made in the test trials area and even the meetings that they were having regarding the car were held in Conrad's own house to keep it away from the factory. So pretty much anyone that needed to know knew and that was about it. They had, they had done well in the French resistance. That's it. <laughs> secret, secret. Um, sorry, but how big's your factory when guys can basically build secret cars in the, in the I work. I work in a manufacturing environment. I don't see how anybody can just take a team and start to build stuff and be like, we're not going to tell anybody here, boys. We'll work away. <laughs> I think it's a case, basically, of management stay up in the boardroom and they probably didn't look anywhere near the, f- the factory floor at times. Yeah, you probably find these are like back in the old days as well. Those guys didn't see what was going on a lot and it was only brought to their attention. As long as targets were being met, carry on, boys. Work away, yeah. And as I say, this was, a lot of it was done on their own time after hours. You know, nowadays everything's electronic. You clock in, you clock out. Probably back then, you just standard in and out and you wrote down your time and away you went. This is Germany now. It's not It's not, It's not. not a year now. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. Well, it's not Northern Ireland, yeah. You we're... just stepped in and <laughs> saluted. <laughs> uh, well, given the company, yes, you might have. <laughs> so as it developed in and developed quite well, they released positive feedback to the board members when the time came and began to hold press events to promote the new quote-unquote sporty theme, bringing along race cars and rally cars to any press events. Lohenberg was given a pre-production golf then, so by this stage they were happy with what was happening, the scene that he had a vision that it was going to work. So they gave him a pre-production golf to develop and produce the first sport golf. It had 13 by 6 wheels, lower springs, different shocks and numerous parts from both Cami and Bilstein. So it's interesting to see Cami working alongside the like the actual manufacturers and they're building things like this. Yeah, but then PBS was starting to move into. That's right. Yeah, we we talked about that in we talked about that, yeah. one of our own episodes there when we we're actually talking about the history of it and seeing how they got involved with the manufacturers too. If you haven't heard that already, check it out. And listen to it as well. Back, listen back, listen to them all. You'll find it somewhere. Yeah. So the engine then was acquired from some friends. At engine testing, so they essentially went to engine testing and says, what have we got kicking about here that we can borrow? And slipped one off the line. Again, how things have got happen, I don't know, but it's it happened. Um, oh, look, there's a the Goodyear blimp. <laughs> <laughs> look over there. Sorry, You've seen nothing. <laughs> Here's some Cuban cigars. Here's a Luger, Luger pistol in your ribs. <laughs> <laughs> Old habits die hard. A 1588cc engine from Audi was adapted to sit transversely and it pumped out 100 horsepower in a Solex carb, so that met the requirements then for the 100 horsepower mark. 
By this stage, any previous doubters were now silent and the car was declared officially as a disguised chassis prototype and as more positive feedback rolled in, it got official backing and then in May 1975, it was to appear at the Frankfurt Motor Show. Frankfurt Motor... Frankfurt Motor Show. Thank you. (laughs) What is wrong with that? You have a stroke, Connor? (laughs) Well, it runs in the family. Have another drink. (laughs) So, as they went on, they developed six prototypes, ranging from raw race car to full comfort mode, and with the best of styling, handling, and pretty much anything going from them. So, actually, I'd love to see the six prototypes lined up because it'd be interesting to see what they developed as like a raw race car versus the full comfort mode and what the kind of compromise was on it you'll probably find some of them in the museum i i I would love to get access like we talked earlier there about jamie Ord. if you follow jamie on instagram you'll see a lot of the stuff he has access to when he's over there and there's probably stuff that he doesn't get to see as well but he gets into a lot of stuff that people do not and it's so good some of the hidden stuff that there is could you imagine a world where the G- I think the GTI would have came eventually, but they just pushed it early. They did, yeah. You, know, you kind of wonder what other manufacturers have developed something like this. So the piece de resistance then would come in the form of diving through the usual Volkswagen Audi parts bin, and it came in the form of fuel injection. So this would make the GTI fast, but it was also drivable at low speeds compared to the likes of twin carbs. The Audi 80 GT and the Passat were about to switch to fuel injection to meet US standards. So this is where they nabbed it from, but in doing so also gained another 10 horsepower, bringing total horsepower up to 110. Anton Conrad then, he met with another name from our previous VR6 episode, Ferdinand Peach, who was heading Audi's technical department and struck a deal for Audi to provide 5,000 engines before the Audi cars actually hit the market. So they were to take these, slip them into the Golf GTI. Twin carbs had been pushed for by Lohenberg, but they had problems with the fact that they were going to have to send out all memos and train all their maintenance staff and the dealerships to essentially work on potentially only 5,000 cars. September 1975 come along. The Golf GTI and the Audi 80 GTE both met it to the ball and appeared at the Frankfurt Auto Show, which apparently I can say now. <laughs> Test manager Herbert Schuster said the Golf was named the GTI simply to distinguish it from the Audi GTE. The E stood for Einspritzen, which is German for injection, and there's no real reason that they picked I for GTI. So a lot of people think it's That's quite interesting. I for <laughs> injection in English, but it's not. It's not where it come from. I suppose two cars kind of similar, you know, but they're two different brands, essentially. You can't really have it. both performance models called the same thing. I don't even know they used to call it Audi Area GTI. Well, GTE. GTE, yeah. There's probably some European one that we didn't get. Despite the prediction of 5,000 units per year, it actually sold 450,000 units between 1976 and 1983. And you work that out, it's actually 56,000 per year and happened to make up 8% of all golf sales at the time. It's crazy. So it's funny to think there's something that came about with a load of guys essentially had an idea and thought, we're going to develop this on our own to one of the best, I don't know if you call it the best selling sports cars, but definitely one of the best known sports cars in recent times. That's a that's equivalent of you and maybe a couple of your friends in your factory going into a corner and making something random. It's ever yeah, and then <laughs> away you go. You know, look what we've done, and then the company take all the credit <laughs> and the money and the, and money. the money. Yeah. <laughs> but at least your name goes down in history. Oh, Big thumbs it. up. You'll have some random boy talking about you on a podcast someday. <laughs> I can't pronounce your name exactly. <laughs> so much respect for him. I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> um. So the next one then is keeping in the Volkswagen stable and we skip the Mark yeah, the, the, II. The, this will be Volkswagen heavy, this topic, I'm afraid. It will. There's a reason. <laughs> As <like>. always. 
I know. We need to talk about job stuff. Keep the boys happy. The next one then we'll talk about is Project A59. Came in the form of the Mark III Golf. And this was a sequel to the well-known Golf Rally. And there's so little known about this. It's it's incredible. Like, even when you go to research it, there's very little. Um, it, is, it is so... There's very little information in this car, like. Yeah, like, when you go... Obviously, the, the GTI made it. There's so much information on it. And you come to this and there's nothing. So it was based on the Mark III Golf, which was the Volkswagen's step back into motorsport. And it had their sights firmly set in the, the Escort Cosworth at the time. Very little was actually revealed about it during its time. And what came before it was the Golf Rally. And as popular as it is now, it was an absolute disaster at the time. The Golf Rally, the best result it actually achieved was third place in Rally New Zealand in 1990. Yeah, and with it that, didn't, really, didn't really kick any doors down the rally. No, it really wasn't doing well. And I suppose with that fresh in people's minds, they wanted to get serious with it and push forward. So... Anything that was leaked at the time was leaked that the car was to be built using the same spec as the other WRC regulars. So four-wheel drive was coming back, tailor with forced induction, and the power was to be around the 300 horsepower mark. Volkswagen Motorsports later stated they were considering either a 2-liter 16-valve or even a 20-valve, either turbo or supercharged. So it shows that Volkswagen were thinking about 20-valve turbo engines. Like, that was six or eight years before the development that came along in the Mark IV. I suppose even when it hit the Mark IV, it was kind of something different. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, five valves per cylinder engines out there. They were looking at this at the end of the late 80s, start of the 90s. The plan was for the dealers to sell 2,500 road cars in 1993. And then the car was competing in the 1994 WRC rally. You followed rally? Imagine, imagine that. Yeah. Imagine. I followed rally, especially when I was younger. I have recollections of 1994. That was when the is and the likes of that were racing. And it's mad to think there could have been a golf kind of tucked in between that. Well, they had the Mark III rally car that uh, McRae's brother yeah. drove, if I remember it. It was yellow. and That's right, but, yeah. Uh, they did rally it, but didn't kick any doors down it. And it wasn't a full... It was like Group N, would it have been? Yeah, it wasn't fire-breathing, 300-horsepower, yeah. four-wheel drive, the way this would have been. Carmen, Volkswagen's long-term partner in builds, were rumoured to be the builders with Walter Rawl, rally legend himself, on the development team for it. I have his signature on a reload T-shirt. Really? So, don't mean the flex. Weird flex, bro. Oh, I like that. Where do you get? How do you get that? The retro run. Remember two years ago they done it. Yeah. Um, Walter Roll was over for it. Oh, the quattro and all. Very good. And uh, so I went down with a Porsche RSR T-shirt and got him to sign it. Do you have it framed on a wall? I'm actually going to uh, Paul's gallery tomorrow, so I think I'll actually I, take it down, and get a frame. You should, yeah, because you'll wear it. We plaque and stuff. Yeah, that that's one to keep there. Um. Schmidt Motorsport then built two prototypes of the car. Instead of using Volkswagen's existing 2-liter 16-valve engine, they actually built their own up the capacity to 1998cc. It was an all-aluminium block. They built a 6-speed gearbox for it, coupled with a Guard T3 turbo, and it actually made 275 horsepower, so it wasn't far off their predicted 300. To put the power down, Schmidt dumped Volkswagen's synchro system, which was in the, the rally as well, and it fitted electronic diffs and four-wheel drive. So it's more... Sound, sounds like the beginnings of... Haldex. Haldex. Indeed, yeah. That's very what it's like. A lot of this car, when you look back on it as well, it screams Mark IV R32. I'll, I'll talk about that towards the end. But the exterior was beefed up. Wider sills, arches, front and rear bumpers, which again, 
kind of inspired the look of the R32 when you see them. There's the three open grills at the front. The back has like a kind of twin exhaust system with like a diffuser between them, same as the Mark IV R32. And then had a host of bonnet vents, which thankfully the the R32 didn't get. It's very max power. <laughs> Think the, Not that max power is a derogatory term. No, but it, it has been over the years. Yes. Um, the, the Bonnet vents are actually very like, do you remember the vents that were on the GT4 Celicas? Yeah. They're kind of like a yeah. D shape. Imagine just three mm-hmm. of those randomly dropped onto a bonnet. Um, on the inside then, full roll cage, digital dash and a pair of infamous Recaro A8 seats. Unfortunately though, European recession in the early 90s and that forced the project to be shelved. But, say, it's interesting to think that the ugly duckling of the Gulfs, which is seen as, could have held its own against Escort Cosworth's Lancia Delta Integrales and had this project went ahead, but as infamous as those cars are now. I think when we talked about the VR6 on the last episode, we said that it was quite a, you know, a departure and quite out of the box and, a, you know, a V6 and a yeah. little shitty hatchback. Maybe that was just a bridge too far. Yeah, it was too much. They were already going pretty balls to the wall with the VR6 anyway. Look at the nostalgia there is for Escort Codsworth and the the Integrales. You know, could people have been looking back on the Mark III? As a rally car? As a rally car going, oh my God, they're amazing. Instead of going... Yeah. All they are is a donor car for it's Mark It's a shitty ones. Mark III, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. What, what could have been? It could have pushed the iconic status of them. That's it, yeah. But unfortunately, we'll never know. So Nigel then, keeping it with Volkswagen in the num- Mark V. Yeah, so let's skip forward a decade. 2007, Martin Wintercorn's the new head of Volkswagen. He basically looked at the brand and he had a, v- a great vision of drop the boring and conservative image. And his idea was to build a prototype race-inspired hot hatch. And that was the Mark V W12 650 GTI. This was basically built in eight weeks by engineers under the orders of Wintercorn. It was launched 2007 at Worthersea, Austria. I remember the it, pictures coming out of it and it was just amazed. It was just a complete departure from their image. It's exactly what he was aiming towards. An absolute wet dream for VW heads. So it, it was ro- launched at Worthersea as a prototype. I actually saw it a year later at GT International at Bruntingthorpe. It was designed by the motorsport division. The designer was Klaus Bischoff. But engine, they basically took a W12 engine out of a Bentley. By turbo, which is basically two VR6 engines welded together. Yeah. They longitudinally mounted it behind the driver uh, as a mid-engine, basically. And that engine produced 650 brakes, 750 newton meters of torque, uh, made it a fatal on gearbox. It had accelerations figure quoted at 3.5 seconds and 202 miles an hour. The reaction to it was unreal. People were just blown away. It was rear-wheel drive, so rings lad, as the people would say. Um, <laughs> Getting an old cone broke out for it. Problem was, though, it was a very short wheelbase, and short wheelbase means very, very sketchy. I, I, I seen it at the time as very much like the Clio V6. Do you remember it? It was mid-engined, but it was actually sold. It wasn't a prototype. Yeah, they um, were... Mid-engined, but it was very sketchy. In fact... A big counterweight hanging at the back of it. Yeah, I remember Aaron McGowan um, from Bangor. He actually was one of the first people in Northern Ireland to have a Clio V6. That's a name I Kirkuson. haven't heard in a while. Yeah, I remember going around Kirkuson and smacking into a barrier in about a second session out. Ooh. So short wheelbase uh, made it very sketchy. The chassis itself was three inches lower, six inches wider. It was a real wide boy. 
So at the front you had 225 tyres and the rear you had 295 tyres. Lightweight 19 inch alloys brakes. It had RS4 brakes up front, Lambo rears. Yeah, so designer Klaus Bischoff, he wanted to retain the classic GTI look but to be functional too. So the exterior had carbon diffusers, bits and pieces, carbon roof. A air feeds were in the lower C pillar, give it that distinctive sort of supercar race car feel. If you look at pictures of it, if you Google it there, it's just fat, wide, low, and then had the big air vents up the side. It sounds like something that you would see at a show that somebody built. You yeah. know, like a modified car that somebody built themselves. I was thinking that you're diving with into the, the mismatched tires and you know wide arches and stuff. It sounds like pulling brakes off an RS4 and Lambo yeah. rears. Yeah. It's it yeah. reads like the spec list of a PVW car. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If someone had built this, you wouldn't be surprised because there is stuff has been built out there like that. But for Volkswagen to go and do it, especially in eight weeks, is incredible. I think there's uh, a few per replicas seen running about in the years that followed it. TDI ones, uh, no. Probably over here. <laughs> there's probably but somebody no. running around the felt with one. Yeah. <laughs> it put shockwaves through the Volkswagen community and the car community and people are going are they going to build it are going to build it and Volkswagen I, th- I think they dragged their heels and wouldn't confirm I think, I think they liked the buzz of it and just yeah. sort of wouldn't say yes or no inside as I said the engine were behind the seats all covered up lovely set of bucket seats I don't know what the bucket seats were out of but they were pretty fancy Alcantara stitching throughout with switch gear and gauges everywhere inside but essentially it was like a Mark 5 Golf inside just with a few wee bolt on bits yeah, if you get into um, that car, you feel like you're in a golf. I'll I'll never forget walking around it that day at GT International. I, I remember we actually drove over that year to it. I remember getting the tickets, and it said that the W12 Golf would be there. To actually see it and walk around it, it actually drove off a trailer, so you heard it going. It uh-huh. just sounded so evil. I love that buzz, though, when you go to a show, you know, and you're seeing cars like that, and you're like, for something that you're really busting to see, and you're like, yeah, you're walking around spotting details, and... Like, especially back then, you know, we hadn't, we talk about this and we make ourselves sound incredibly old, but, you know, the internet wasn't as prevalent then, Facebook, Instagram, you know, you're not seeing all that stuff all the time. So to get seeing that and have a proper detailed look around, it's brilliant. It blew my mind. It was just fantastic. I don't know if anybody's watched it, but uh, Jeremy Clarkson got to drive it around the test track and it's quite funny. He said the handling was terrible, very twitchy. But you've got to understand, it was just a prototype that was built in eight weeks. The thing that blew Clarkson away was the power, but you seen him going into corners and it just spun yeah. all the time. Yeah, he had a lot of traction problems at the back end. So, not bad for an eight-week build. It must but, be incredible to work on stuff like that, though, to get to develop it. Oh, imagine waking up every morning going, This is what I get to it. do. <laughs> I built the W12 Mark V Golf today. <laughs> Living the dream. But, as I said, didn't matter about the buzz because it was only a prototype. VW confirmed then, I think it was 2008, that they definitely wouldn't be building it. They were looking towards the Mark VI. And uh, I don't think today there's a snowball chance in hell of that happening after Dieselgate and with the electric revolution coming in. I don't think you're going to really see much more like that. Although saying that, it does kind of tie in with the episode 10 we had with Sean Maynard on and the fact that their marketing team were building kind of like, I suppose essentially behind the scenes skunk work projects to bring to shows you know they're they're doing their own thing off the grid of what me and volkswagen are seeing them do or expecting them to do and just 
getting out there with it. So, so it, I suppose what Sean's doing is like a feedback initiative for Volkswagen too. What works, what doesn't work. Yeah. What like he, a marketing. Well, he is marketing, like, but you know. Yeah. I mean? No, no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was the W12. That's something that had definitely had an impact in my life. Yeah, no, they're definitely. I remember it appearing. It was a lot of buzz around. It was cool. Yeah. So. I'm going to move on to, it's like a three-for-one offer, this next car. Well, three cars I'm going to talk about. This, for me, is three cars, but the end product is a car that was basically a poster in my bedroom wall when I was younger, the RS200. Some of the younger listeners won't maybe know what an RS200 was. Yeah, you probably have to Google that, but... We'll go back to the start of the story, and it's another car that was built for motorsport, but was never, it was due to be homologated and sold to the public to meet the homologation requirements, but never got made. And that's the Mark III Escort 1700T. So in the 70s, as many as know, the Mark I and Mark II Escorts absolutely dominated. So the Mark III was next in uh, Ford's motorsports sites, and it, it looked like it was going to be a difficult third album. The 1700T was described as the works rally Ford that never was. And that's our topic today, I suppose. So, in 1979, Ford sold all their works Mark II Escorts fleet to Dave Sutton Motorsport team to focus and develop their next stage, targeting Group B rallying and their next projects in the 80s. As a side note, Sutton, who bought the Mark II works um, Escorts, won titles for a further two years with his, with the Mark IIs that Ford Motorsports sold. So, they dropped on there, Ford. Yeah, and I suppose you say it was sort of the difficult third album in this case, was... The fact that they switched to front wheel drive as well, you know, they departed from their rear wheel drive yeah. efforts. It was it was a turning point for Ford. So Ford then set about to design and develop this car. They employed or they got John Wheeler and Ford in their design department to start building this project in the Boring facility. The code name for the seventeen hundred T was Columbia. So uh, very James Bond, a kind of skunk works, but official skunk works as such. Yeah. So they had to work on a Mark Three Escort base, and the first problem. They, they soon became to realize was there was little room in the engine bay and a short wheelbase, which would prove uh, problematic. So in the initial stages, they started mucking about with Mark II Fiestas with a Mark III silhouette shell on it, basically, to start and developed. Then they moved on to decide custom rear-wheel drive chassis with a molded body. But Mark II underpinnings, they continued to be a key part of the build. And as the old saying goes, they ain't broke, don't fix it. So they, got, they had developed stuff through the 70s. And they knew what worked, and they kept with some of the parts. They, they didn't see any room for improvement with stuff that was working well. Okay. So in the background, Audi was winning with four-wheel drive, but Ford was just like, nah, that four-wheel drive car will never come to it's much. It's just a phase. It's just a fad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> them, them crazy Germans. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's get down and talk about the engine. The BDA engine, that may be familiar for a few Ford fans. It's a, an absolute stormer of an engine that was developed through the 70s and early 80s in the Mark I and Mark II. Proved strong and reliable. It was a 2-litre at the run, the Mark II Escort. But for this project, they reduced the capacity of the cylinders, the 1778, hence the 1700 name for the project. But they turbocharged it, and to meet classifications of the 2-litre to 2.5 class, due to regulations, a turbo adds a 1.4 multiplier effect. Yep. So basically a 1700 equates to a 2.489cc. So that made it workable within the regulations. So they developed the BDA engine into what was called the BDT engine. An absolute stormer of an engine producing 350 brake. Transmission-wise, the quite complicated. They kept the engine in the front and they use a transaxle system. 
So that's your axle, your diff and your gearbox all in one place. And this was mainly due to John Wheeler who used to work in Porsche. He actually helped design the 928 Porsche, which yeah. is a trans- transaxle setup. I was going to say, but, would some of the Porsches use a similar setup to that? Yeah, so I think it was uh, Prototype 4 actually used 928 transaxles in the development. So, uh, yeah, a bit of Porsche influence and a Ford, who knew? <laughs> yeah, so, so Daffy didn't know that one. John Wheeler was all about weight distribution and handling, so this transaxle meant it was a more balanced chassis, and uh, improve handling because that was rally was about it was basically getting around the corners as quickly as possible as well as power so uh yeah that's the reason for a transaxle was used so by 1981 the project was moving along but it was getting very slow due to technical issues development issues it was just becoming a, a bit of a problem so to aid things a bit faster Ford then started looking the, the Ford's parts bin using a few bits and pieces here and there. And they were told to fast track it due to board pressure. Basically, this has been going on for years now. And I think the fact that Sutton had been winning with the Mark T Escort, Quattro were absolutely dominating. Basically, get your act together and get this done. Yeah. Pull the finger out, guys. You've had enough time. Swing around to Rally Portugal, 1982. And brought the 17T out for testing. And it performed really well. But unfortunately, the Quattro still set the pace. Homologation was about to begin in the Sarlos plant in Germany of the 1700T, but Ford watched as the Audi Quattro dominated and they admitted defeat, so pulled the plug and decided we need to look at a four-wheel drive project. It became clear that in Group B, four-wheel drive and mid-engine was the, the way to go, so all their hard work down the drain. That was the end of the 1700T. Any prototypes that were made and had started production were basically sent to rally in South Africa where there's no homologation um, requirements and it was known as the Escort RST. So there's a few of them kicking around today. Yeah. RIP to the 1700T. I'll tell you what, I bet you those engineers were so mad. Any engineers that I know, like, if they design something that needs, like, even if it needs simple revisions done to it, they're not happy because it's like, I've designed this how it should be, you know, and you're coming along and telling me it's not right. So for something like that just You can also bend, imagine... They're getting pressure from the board, so you can guarantee them guys were putting in stupid hours in that oh, yeah. lead up. And then suddenly and then it's all in the bin. Yeah. Lights <laughs> off, boys. <laughs> yeah, those guys would be angry. But all's not lost with the engine because, alas, it was used in the RS200. The RS200 was actually produced, but it's more to do with RS200 Evo, which is basically the absolute mental version of the RS200 that I'm going to talk about towards the end of this. But why I'm talking about the RS200 is basically, as I said earlier, I had this poster on my wall as a kid. This car, for homologation requirements, was actually sold to the public. It was launched at the Belfast Motor Show in 1984, and this guy was there. You have to wonder (laughs) why, don't you? (laughs) Belfast, like... I was seven at the time, I think, 1984. <laughs> well, we weren't uh, born. No. <laughs> Ford Ford had basically, if you remember the King's Hall, there was the octagon sort of building to the side of the main hall. Yeah, I do. Ford Ford every year used to take that, out, that sort of side hall. And this year we went. There was a big buzz about the RS200 and it was sitting bang in the middle of the hall. And I remember walking in going, wow, look at this, look at this. And they were giving out free posters and got a poster, put it up on the wall. Absolutely awesome. I remember saying to my dad, why don't you buy one of them? Why don't you buy one of them? Well, the problem was at the time, it was £49,000 for an RS200. In 1984 money? Yeah. 
I think an escort was four thousand pounds or five thousand ah. pounds at the time. Your dad hadn't got into the Colombian drug lord money at that stage, no. No, oh, he was growing spuds, not uh, marijuana. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so I'll go into a bit about the RS two hundred then, and yeah, as I say, it means a bit to me just because I have the poster on the wall and see, actually seeing it in the flesh back in nineteen eighty four. This is literally so, a poster yes, car for you. I am an old guy. Deal with it. So. <laughs> The RS-1700 been dropped. Ford had focused their attention now on um, four-wheel drive, mid-engined rally car. So, RS-200 project began. They brought in two F1 engineers, one Tony Southgate and one John Wheeler. You'll remember John Wheeler from the previous 1700 um, project. Design um, of the actual body was by, by Filippo Sano. I don't actually know a lot about this guy, but I think somebody mentioned about he had something to do with Ferrari. So if you look at the RS200, you know, there is a bit of Italian flair going on. It is a very stylish looking car. So building design of the car, as I said, they brought in the, uh, or they developed further the 1700T engine, um, developing 250 brake, 215 pound foot of torque. The focus of the car was on weight distribution. This time they had the car sort of switched things about for this. So the car was mid-engine, or the engine was in the middle now, and they had the gearbox at the front. So basically had an engine at the back putting power to the gearbox, and then the gearbox putting power back down to the rear axle and the front axle at the same time. So as you can imagine, a pretty complex setup. That's a strange setup. Yeah, that would be handy worked out if anything went wrong. Suspension-wise, dual coilovers, um, suspension at each corner, Chassis was an aluminium honeycomb design. Bodywork was a mixture of composite and carbon glass. Um, it had a clamshell rear for ease of maintenance and access during the rallies. As they pushed on with the build of the project, the good old fart, fart spin. <laughs> <laughs> You're obsessed. Oh dear. So the, the part spin was used to speed up the process and sort of keep costs down, I suppose. So if you look at the RS200 closely, you'll notice that... Uh, Sierra with switch gear inside it. The front windscreen was out of Sierra and the rear lights are out of Sierra. That's interesting. So, yeah, it's a part spin car and I have a car like that. It's called Corrado. There's a mixture of all sorts. I was going to say all of our cars <laughs> yeah. are like that. Bits and pieces. Development dragged on. The body of the car was farmed out to be assembled by no other than Reliant of the Robin Reliant fame. Fiberglass they were, masters. They, they were fiberglass specialists so they were brought in to, to build it. As I say, development dragged on. By 1985, they pushed then to start bringing out it for testing and had a small outings here and there. Testing found that part of weight ratio was poor. It just wasn't fit the purpose, but the handling and cornering was excellent. The main problem they had was basically low down pickup. So that wasn't ideal for rallying where you need to pick up immediately out of the corner. So that became a problem that would have to be addressed down the line. And as you see, it will be. By 1985 then, homologation of the cars, and they started to be uh, built to be sold eventually. 1986 then, they launched onto the WRC stage and struggled a lot, keeping up pace with what was in the field at the minute, the T16, the Stratos. Its best result was in the Rally Sweden, where it finished third. But all came to a crashing end on the next rally, quite literally. Uh, It was the Rally Portugal. Part of the downfall of Group B was the fallen accident when Joaquim Santos and his RS2000 crashed into a massive crowd, uh, killing three people and seriously injuring lots more. 
what? you've got to understand back in the 80s, crowd safety was terrible. You see some of the pictures of Quattro's and various other cars going down mountain roads, desert roads, various rallies, and people are actually nearly touching the car. And sometimes cars used to come in the pits and fingers were found in some of the air vents. Yeah. So Killing people then is yeah. not going to do Ford's credit much good, is it? I think there was a series of crashes too, not just the RS2000. I think the RS2000 crash was one of the most serious. Also, in the, the same month, the Hessen Rally in Germany, F1 driver Mark Schurer was driving a RS2000, and he crashed and killed two people. This combined with just the absolute manic power that was in Group B, the decision was made, that was it. This series is far too dangerous, and after serious crashes, some deaths, that was it. Group B was over. Group B is amazing, so, but it was so dangerous. So... Ford were basically standing there with 200 cars built to homologation with no heritage. So they had to go and try and sell them to the public. Um, <laughs> what do we do with these? They sold 158. Now, I don't know if they sold the rest of them. Obviously they had because somebody's bought them. But at the time, I think they only sold 158. As I say, this story leads on to the RS200 Evo. As the car was being developed, I said the, the power thing was a problem. At the same time, they were developing the Evo RS200. It was the next stage of the RS200 car. It was increased power just before the ban, and it would have made the critical difference to the RS200 project. I think as regulations eased just before the crash, they were able to increase the capacity of the engine to 2.1, and they also increased their power to 550 brake. Just so you can kill more pedestrians and more spectators, aye. (laughs) It was the power race, but apparently that engine was capable of 850 brake in full race mode as it was used in rallycross the engine was proved to show so yeah there's 24 evo uh, rs200 evos built between 86 and 82 but not homologated as such so they're purely a motorsport machine yeah and as i said they were capable of 850 brake and full race spec that's crazy on race fuel absolute manic you imagine the late 80s having an 850 brake four-wheel drive yeah i've never actually seen one of those before you know i've never even heard tell of that the evo model so yeah. they must be fairly rare the evo, the, the Evo was the Ford Unicorn, as I say. Um, but it went on to, in the, the end of the 80s to have great success in the Rallycross. It absolutely dominated in various series around the world. And it was also used in hill climb. It was used by Stig Bloomkist at Pikes Peak to break the Pikes Peak record. I forget what year it is. It's good to see that the Evo actually did have some success here and there. Yeah, if it wasn't how Ford wanted it, it still had success in motorsport in general. Ken Block has a RS200 Evo. And I was actually watching one of the Hoonigan videos of him taking his car out for a run. Maybe I have seen these then, yeah. Just to see Ken's face when he first drives the car. For a man that's drove so many fast things in his time, his face (laughs) when he floors it for the first time, it was actually quite funny. So uh, not to be taken lately or lightly. No, and Um, 80s turbo technology, I'm going to assume that it is nothing, nothing, nothing. And then, oh, bang, yeah, fill your trousers time. Lag for days. Yeah. Lag for days. That's what it's all about. But, uh, no. So that's my salute to the RS200 Evo. The poster stayed in my wall for many a year. Excellent. And you got to see it as well as a small child. Yeah. So I've lived my life. I've seen a W12 <laughs> in the flesh <laughs> and I've seen I've seen an RS200 in his flesh. And the RS200 meant so much to you that you went and bought all Volkswagens. Yeah, they just changed my life. That was me. I'm going to avoid these rusty Fords and buy rusty Volkswagens. Yeah, I see what you did there, but I'm going to buy a Volkswagen instead. Thanks very much, Ford. <laughs> so just to finish up, um, this sort of cars that never were, 
have a short segment here in BMWs. Now, I'm sure it'll be corrected and there's other things that haven't been produced, but this is just some of the things that I've came across and just thought it was quite interesting. So we'll kick off, first of all, with the E30 M3 pickup. So M Division decided they need a parts hauler in the Munich factory. So they took a E33 3-series convertible, as it already had bracing for picking up heavy loads yep. due to the convertible nature of it. So initially they put a 2-litre S14 189 brake engine into it. Then later they put a 2.397 brake engine into it. So that was their parts lugger. I think it was just a bit of a, a laugh at the M factory. Yeah, I suppose um, if you've got the abilities and the parts to do it, why not? That sounds yeah, I awesome. Look, I would buy one of those. It's a German Ute. Probably heard tell of the T2 pickups they had in the Volkswagen factory and just thought, ah, we'll, we'll, have, do them. we'll have our turn in that, basically. Yep. That actually got used at the M factory for 26 years. That's brilliant. When it, and then it was retired to the Heritage fleet. So to continue the tradition, they decided to do the same to an E92. And so they ha- now have and still in the M factory is an E92 M3 pickup running an S65 engine with a 4 litre V8 415 brake engine. That's class. <laughs> I can carry Just pumped out of the shops here, Governor, for milk, seeing a bit. <laughs> Wonder to keep uh, the rear bed full of rod burns for it. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, BMW. So, so the next car I'm going to talk about is the E36 M3 compact concept. So I don't know if any of you remember the compact E36 that was made. Well, just as a development project, a sort of prototype, M Division decided that they would build a M compact. They were sort of thinking this would be a cheaper entry to get people into, uh, get younger drivers into an M car. So they actually developed it. They put the 3.2 litre S50 engine, uh, developed 321 brake and a compact E36. Would have been quite a handful. Just reading into this here, it seems to be that it was basically a, a precursor to the M2, the sort of forefather of it, just the sort of small, compact, big power. I love such. M2s. I have such yeah. a horn for one. I really want one. Yeah, they're class. <laughs> um, yeah, you're saying there, but they didn't actually build that E36 compact M3. They probably would have sold quite well because guys have built those over the years. When I was yeah. 17, there was one running around Banbridge based on the That's right. the individual yep. colour, like a turquoise kind of colour. I remember that car. Guy yeah. Garfield but driving it, yeah. Garfield, the very, yeah. Yeah, he, um, that, that, that got that some hammer. really well. Yeah. We were at Tully Road one think, night, do you mind? And there was a car going around. And I was, and I think you said oh, or something, I didn't think they made an yeah. M3 compact. It was a drift night. <laughs> and uh, turns out it wasn't. It was just a regular M3, but it hit the wall so many times <laughs> that it was just <laughs> short. Yeah. It, it, it hit the wall that hard it just come it basically drove the boot lid and tail lights into the back seat and honestly i was we had arrived and i was looking down and going geez an e46 compact m3 that, and had all the bumpers and all on it and i was like well the front bumper anyway and i was like yeah that thing's really cool and all. then i got up to it and went oh someone's had an it's expensive just night <laughs> been concertinaed and <laughs> yeah <laughs> looks like somebody trying to crush it I think maybe that project was shelled busy because it probably would have affected the M3 sales. Probably, yeah. They don't like to sort of step on their own toes. Whereas now they'll build anything for money. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They've sold out. So the next one, and I think this is one they really dropped the ball and they should have built, and that was the E46 M3 Touring. Yeah. An estate M3 E46. They basically let Audi and Mercedes have a free market of the sort of the super Avant, the big um, powerful estate car. There was a prototype made with the M3 running gear, but unfortunately it was never made and 
they're really screwed up not doing that, I think. Yeah. I mean, epic. And they're, again, same sort of thing. People have built these over the years, you know, so yeah. there isn't demand for them or a market for them. But as you say, they left themselves wide open for Audi and Mercedes just to snap up all the, the, the fast... cool estates. Yeah, the fast, cool estates. So that sort of wraps up our little cars it should have been or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I really enjoyed doing the research on that there. It's it's good doing the research on some of these topics sometimes. Yeah, because it's interesting. it gives you time and kind of forces you to take the time to learn about stuff that you wouldn't actually have read about you know otherwise or might have yeah, just came across yeah you sort of have inklings of it in your head but it was good to do a bit of research in the rs200 just sort of car that sort of meant a lot to me back when i was younger yeah no so, definitely you can yeah. revisit it hope you find it as interesting as i did excellent so we'll go from there and move on to our usual listeners questions lee do you want to take off with that i will so first question comes from s14 ocp he says what's the coolest pickup ever and why is it the Mark One Caddy? I'm gonna say Simon's biased because he has a Mark One Caddy, but he's maybe <laughs> I think he not. Might be, you know. Yeah, but he's maybe not far wrong. They are they're such a cool wee car or yeah. truck. I have to agree. Mark One Caddy is pretty cool. I have a real soft spot for the Holden Utes. You know, in Australia they have. Yes, I like those. They're a bit cool. Yeah, even some of the old American stuff that we don't. We always say we don't really know much about it, but you look at it and you go, "Yeah, that's cool." Those old Chevy trucks and stuff. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. But honestly, the cool guy used to work the Richard Rawlings, and he started up his own paint shop. Oh, KC, he is. Uh, he's always he building the C tens. Oh, yeah, they're C-10 cool. Builds, they're awesome. Yeah, I'm Absolutely a big awesome. fan of those. Again, know nothing about them, but if you paint some green, I'm in. <laughs> Next question from Jack Anderson, 938. Best sounding exhaust for a VR6 Golf? Depends on what you want, I suppose. Yeah, if you want to be asbo loud, I'm not the guy to ask because mine's... Straight pipe. Straight pipe. Pepper, sure. Straight pipe, mate. <laughs> um, Popcorn mod. Oh. I, th- I think to get the full noise out of VR6, you have to decat them. Six brands and decat. Yeah, well, my own car has it's a standard manifold. Decat into a resonated Miltech, or sorry, no, oh, not resonated Miltech, a resonated Magnex, which is actually kind of like an old exhaust, you know, from like sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Magnex would have been quite big, and mm-hmm. it's a really nice combination of it's usable around town. You don't you get a bit of a burble, but it's not unbearable to sit in. And then when you floor yeah, it, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than drone. Oh, yeah. And then when you floor it, it opens up. In fact, if you listen to the last episode of VR6s, you can actually hear my car and the sound clip that I edited in. That's actually my car in it. And it's just so basically standard manifold DCAT on the Magnex system. And it worked really well for me. But it, as Lee says, it just depends what you want. Any VR6 I have had. I think I've always either run Miltech or uh, Jetex. Mm-hmm. Nice level of noise, not too blurry. No drone at 70 mile an hour motorway speeds. So yeah, as it all comes down to what you want, really. And the Jetex would be the cheaper option between that and the Miltech. And to be honest, I've yeah. heard Jetex as well. And there's little, like, I haven't ever seen any reason to go for a Miltech over them. Next question from Ronan, H21. Why do I want an E65 7 Series as a daily so much? Well, you'll never be able to tax it, Ronan, because I know where you live. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> I think secretly Ronan is uh, Russian mafia. Russian. That's why he wants one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he wants one because he, well, I was going to say he wants to spend all his money, but if he's going to build this VR6 Turbo, he's going to spend all his money. Those things are cool. They're cheap to buy, but uh, um, he's no fool. He'll know himself, but the running cost those things can catch out quite a lot. Buy a set. What is it, a 730D he's looking at? Seven, does it say which model? 
Just yeah. seven series. I think that's three liter diesel is pretty bulletproof. Probably are. Yeah, a friend of mine, Sharky, and just everything around it. His, yeah, exactly. <laughs> his dad bought one. Oh, could be eight years ago or more. He actually bought the the petrol V eight, and it was cheaper to buy the petrol V eight than it was the diesel because no one wanted them. And he gas converted it, and it was getting similar or better miles per gallon than the diesel, and it was cheaper to buy. And sounded awesome. And sounded awesome. <laughs> Absolute baller status. <laughs> Question from Dog Pizza: Mark three with forty five horsepower VR, or a one point six non turbo diesel that makes VR par. I would just I like to this, Connor. I would just like to say <laughs> that Mike knows how to push my buttons, <laughs> and I also hate him. I'm going to go with the diesel. I can't. I thought that was the end of you, Connor. That question. It has to be, but I can't. <laughs> I have to go with it. One point six straight diesel. So easy to run. No maintenance. Just you're right. You know, it'll the, go forever. It is one of those engines <laughs> that just runs forever. Like, but oh, it's the noise. I like the VR. Yeah, it's that <laughs> penis enlarger. <laughs> it's like having a BMX with a cardboard on. It is sound like a motorbike. <laughs> 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 you're going with the 45 horsepower VR then? Yes, they're slow anyway. Why not make it slower? It'd, be, it'd probably still be quicker than a Lexus IS200. Oh, yeah, that is the epitome of. <laughs> I don't know. Shite. The weight of a VR, it'll hardly be able to pull itself around. Still sound better. Uh, next question from Josh GTI. Next cars to make a resurgence in popularity and value, like 16 Valve Mark III, Future Twin Cams, E30, etc. I think we just named it there. IS200. Oh, they're so <laughs> I, awful. Honestly, you look they at the market. They're the worst I, cars in the world. I hate them. They're an absolute... The new, the new twin cam. Yeah, but that's it. And that's buy them now. Look what buy twin. Cam, look at the price of twin cams have went. Yep. Twin cams, and for anybody outside of Ireland who has a brain and doesn't call them twin cams, to see A eighty six Corolla, the price has skyrocketed. If you've got five grand sitting, why and buy two good examples for a couple of grand, stick I, in the shed and walk away. Well, one thing it tells you about them is well the the Donegal Rally inbreds they're mad for them, and like. All the raffle sites now are starting to raffle them off in good examples. You know, people want them and they're getting good yeah. money for them. But like, there's the late Ricky Boyd. What did he sell a twin cam for? Like a really concourse example was a thirty-five grand yeah, it was for a Corolla. But I'm telling you, the, yeah. that's the latest generation of that scene is going to grow up and see IS two hundreds and the likes as that because plus it's the last of a dying breed of affordable rear wheel drive cars. Yeah. You know, your your BMWs are coming out now, two million electronics, they're not doing what they want. So that's that's the end of it. If I was gonna buy cars to invest in and that, should it sit for the next fifteen to twenty years, IS two hundred, as much as it kills me to say. And you'll find maybe in ten or fifteen, twenty years time that they'll pull the useless engine out and start putting what is now in the super engine. Ah uh, yes. Into. Yeah. Two JZs and then the, the BMW yeah. engine. I, ha- I haven't good authority that this in 30s are uh, going to go up in value too. You're going to put the price years up? It's <laughs> <laughs> inside information. Oh dear. But yes, if I was a betting man, I asked 200. Oh, my goodness. Where have we gone wrong? Uh, I know. Tell me about it. I <laughs> we not haven't. <laughs> I'll not be buying one, but like that. FF Metalworks asks, what is your dream job? You, Dennis. Dream job? That's a hard one. I would honestly say my dream job changes every day. Yeah. My dream job doesn't really, like I probably don't have the skills to do it, but to run like some sort of cool custom shop or even custom bike shop. 
and again, we yeah. talked about it before, the, the market in this country for stuff like that isn't great either. I wouldn't like to be a normal mechanic, but I'd like to work on specialist projects and things like that. I think my dream job would probably involve travel, cars, and good times. Sean Maynard's <laughs> job then? Sean Maynard's yeah, job. Basically. Or the, you know, basically you want to be a, a playboy billionaire, is that what you want? Just call me Dan. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> I wish when I was younger, when I did my welding apprenticeships and stuff, what I, I wish... I thought that was the beginning of the lyrics of a song. <laughs> <laughs> I wish when I was younger. <laughs> what I wish I had done back then, or even before that, I wish I'd got into that diving welding. Oh, the underwater stuff? I'd love to have done that, but yeah. that is a young man's game, like. And you're not a young man? No, you're, never was. You're an old woman. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would love to have done that. Part of my job entails like research and development and like development testing and that kind of thing and even doing something like that's interesting because it kind of brings in that side of like experimentation and that anything along that sort of anything sort of engineering or anything to do with cars and motorbikes but it probably changes every day um another one from ff metalworks he asks if you were to design custom wheels for your car what's the spoke count five five or six I would have thought you would have said three, Lee. I do like three as well. And I would have thought Nigel would have said multi-spokes. I suppose, yeah. That's true. Never thought it that way. And for me... <laughs> hmm. But if I was going to design a three-spoke, you've already got... Um, Advance. Advance, so I wouldn't have to design the, the, them. They're just there. They've peaked. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know, for me... Or Y-wheels. I like a, a mesh design. Maybe speak to Dennis, see can he make me something custom. The problem is... The cross spoke design has been done and it can't be improved. I don't, I think it's just you know what I mean. I know you're yeah. You don't want to say play it out, but play it out. Yeah, yeah. I like a seven spoke design, right? Such With as the Bora wheels, the OEM wheels are they're mm-hmm. tiny and crap. They're like sixteens, but I like that they're as they park with the cent like one of the spokes up at the center at the top. The two bottom spokes don't line up obviously because they split off of it. Yeah, and I like that, which usually is like something that would keep me up at night. Um, but if I get like 18 inch versions of those I would put them onto the car but yeah something probably if you're going to do something custom try and do something a wee bit different but don't do something gaudy I suppose Koala bird or something Koala bird an OEM OEM I can almost say it (laughs) an OEM plus sort of taking a wheel I think yeah I think that's the best way I think Rotoform do a lot of that you know they kind of look at old designs and then play on it well, just when you're talking about OEM wheels, the next question is from Ryan Cudlip. He asks, favourite OEM wheel, past and present? His is 964 Turbo Splits and VW Pretorias, but he says he's biased. Because he probably has those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon, Lee? My Mitsubishi L200 Warrior wheels. I knew they would appear. Bang. Um, are they past, I suppose? What's present? I suppose they present? are old. Do you know what? I really love the Loganos on my Sirocco. Yeah. I think they're really nice. They are nice. Um, I love this original Sirocco design of the like kind of twisted back spokes. Mm-hmm. But then the Loganos... Every second spoke. spoke goes the other way. Yeah. And I, I really like them. I think they're really nice. Yeah, probably two good choices. Um, For me... For me... For me... I don't know. Old school? Probably just going to be the RS. You know, I said it earlier, mesh design for me is just really cool it's what i've had oem wise though can you count an rs as an oem wheel what did they come on it, it was an option on the g60 so i can slip in there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um modern stuff you know what modern wheels like modern cars have some horrible wheels yeah they really do 
All this diamond cutting and fucking black bits on them and all. Ugh, no thanks. Pretoria wheels hard to beat in the Mark Seven. I like it. Yeah, and they're they don't really follow that design of the newer stuff where it is as Lee says just diamond cut in black and looks like something that came out of Halfords. <laughs> Going back to OEM or older OEM. I really, really love the Mark IV Anniversary 18-inch RCs. Yeah, they are a nice wheel. In fact, I love them wheels. Do you know what? I've actually I changed my mind on the old one. D90s. Porsche D90s. I do like yeah. those. Simple, monoblock, solid face design. Simple, effective. Like myself. <laughs> <laughs> Gets the job done. Uh, for the modern stuff, I don't really know, Nigel, do you? It's hard to think of a wheel at the moment. Honestly, my head's racing here. Yeah. I was kind of thinking even like the... What was the wheels that came on the BMW, the M3 don't CSL? Oh, don't say But even, yeah. like, even those are, like, 15-year-old, you know, that's not really modern, I suppose. Oh, sorry. Oh, I thought you were talking about the the recent... Uh, no, BMW no, like, on an E46, that kind of thing. They're, like, a CH almost, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're, like, big, open BBS-style design, but... Yeah, they're a lovely wheel. But again, they're not exactly modern. So uh, basically, can I conclude on a modern wheel. Then? Yes, you can stick them all <laughs> up your arse. Um, Pretoria gets my vote. Yes, and <laughs> Pretoria gets my vote. Don't listen to them guys. <laughs> Next question from Amy McGarry. What is your thoughts on the eighteen T twenty valve? I've only ever driven one. It was the Mark IV that I bought a few Nigel, but I actually really liked it. Is that, surprisingly, is that the, one that died? the one that died. One yeah. Died? It just it developed a mysterious misfire, and uh, as the builders of the Titanic said, it was all right when it left here. Yeah. yeah. And it well, was all right for the six months that I drove it, so I obviously broke it in some way, but I don't know what it did. Lee's whole thing for buying that car was, I need something to take a gearbox home in, so yeah. I'll buy another car. <laughs> oh, why not? That's perfectly good logic. But oh. you know what? I really liked it, and I, I didn't think that I would, but I did. I shit-talked 20-valve turbos for years, and then I drove Lee's, and do you know what? It was actually a really nice driving car. Yeah. It wasn't Real quick. Real responsive, but yeah. nice. But, like, it, it wasn't quick in the slightest, but it was just a really nice thing to drive because it just drove smooth. Yeah. I know you can get big power from them. Um, we're in Raf's. When we were over for Alpine Vag Fair last year, Raf has one in a Mark 1 cab. And, like, he's a lot of work done to it, but that thing, like, we had three up in the cab, and that thing was screaming, and it was quick. Like, yeah. you know, he was hammering along... Kind of not tight back roads, but like back roads up wee mountains, like up by lakes and things like that. And I was like, yeah, this thing's seriously impressive. And it made a lot of cool noises. Have you any experience with them, Nigel? Yeah, I've had a few 18Ts in my time. Um, the way I look at it is they were a bit underpowered when they were first launched. And I think Volkswagen dropped the ball on that. It means to an end, the 18T was the early stages of the development of the now absolutely stormer of a two liter, liter turbo that Volkswagen. So, yeah, it's like um, anything that. They'll tune well. Yeah, well, I had a Mark One Audi TT with a two two five on it. I got a map on it. It was a great pulling machine. Very smooth engine, I found. Very well developed engine. Yeah, that's what we found with the the Mark Four. It was just say it was slow, but it was just nice to drive. Yeah. Okay. Next question is from Grant Gilliland. Grant, I voted for your car repeatedly on the uh, fitted lockdown league, so I'm very sorry that you didn't win. Yeah, that's a, that's as, a nice. As did I. <laughs> yeah, sort of. I seen it. I was like, yeah, that's a seriously a fo- nice car. A foreigner one. A foreigner a one. Damn foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> that thing's cool, though. To be fair. In fact, yeah. it was both. I think the two finishing cars were both foreign. One was Austrian. The is it Edelweiss Customs? Is it I, the Ferrari? Yeah, it was cool. I liked it. So Grant asks, do you think with all this time over winter and then lockdown, 
there'll be lots of fresh builds and new ideas to come to shows when they eventually start again. I hope so. I think there will. I mean, there's plenty of builds that have been going on recently of, you know, stuff that people have just not quite got round to and suddenly they've had a bit of time and they have started on things. So, yeah, I think there will. Like, there's Andy Maxwell's lockdown logs that you done, Nigel, with him. And even, you know, he's a car sitting that he hasn't got touched in literally years and he's at them now. Yeah, and they're on the ramp, the parts are sitting, so he will get them finished Yeah, sooner rather than later now because of the lockdown. Even on Instagram there, there's cars, like there was a guy, I can't remember his username, but he had a red Mark II VR6 and he got a supercharger, I think it's the M, M60 something, the one that, the bigger one that was on the Jags, and he custom mounted it and ran like a charge cooler on it. And he'd done this all in like on lockdown time when probably wouldn't have had the time to do it otherwise. It's so yeah, hopefully next year... There'll be a lot of stuff coming out of the woodwork that, or even existing builds will have had more improvements and more done to them. And My own included, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. I, th- I think there's another two things maybe to take out of two. The first being that there'll maybe be people that'll look at a project and maybe haven't done anything under lockdown. And maybe they'll go, right, if I'm not going to do it under lockdown, when will I do it? Yeah. I might see a few projects actually sold. Hopefully a few things parts. coming on the market. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> what we need. Keep Lee off Facebook market. <laughs> the other thing I think about lockdown is, I think you should agree on this, with no shows at the minute, I, I feel when I go to shows I get inspiration, get ideas, you know. Yeah, you're right. I, I think a bit of creativity actually might be affected by not having any shows at the minute. Yeah, it's not the motivation. Yeah, because yeah. I know when I come away from a show, I'm like, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy this, I'm, I'm going to build do this. this. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody falls into that. Buzz. Thanks for that question, Grant. Yeah, I mm-hmm. like that one. Next question. I don't know how to pronounce this. R.O. Patrick Stad. R.O. Patrick Stad. There you go. I don't know. Um, What's your tech setup, specifically lighting, mics and software? Nigel, do you want to feel that one? Well, at the moment, we're sitting in our living room. So our lighting consists of a large overhead lamp and a small table lamp made out of an old air filter. And an exhaust. And a bit of an exhaust. So that's the lighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're sort of winging it at the minute. But usually we'll have a Rode Podmaster set up. And then we'll have a few Rode microphones, Rode stands. We're a big believer in Rode products, Connor, aren't we? Yeah, well, they do the job, don't they? It's yeah. just unfortunate we have to record 30 miles away from each other. It kind of puts a bit of a hamper on that at times. Yeah, so we're having to downgrade our equipment to Zooms at the minute. Yeah, there's a bit of a learning curve, but sure, we'll get there. Lighting, um, we're not doing YouTube, so lighting is just a light box, and if you've basically, been, and a bulb. Yeah, and if you've been watching the uh, lockdown logs, it's Lee and I's lovely curtains backlit by the, the patio doors. Sun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I stepped into the curtain wars the other night when I done mine. I don't know, I got so much grief for those curtains, and they like we bought this house and the curtains came in it. The first five comments I got were nice curtains. Is this, is this a competition? Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> In fairness, yours probably are nicer than ours. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be difficult. But, um, you know... Well, I, I took you... your advice and I basically sat in a room right beside my modem, so... Yeah, perfect. But I'll tell you what, and I will make people feel bad. If you want to talk shit about my dead grandmother's curtains, you feel free <gasps> and you think about what you've done. <laughs> there we go. I've said it. I have said it. So we'll take out of that. Don't disc Connor's granny's curtains. Right exactly. <laughs> uh, another one from S14 OCP. What car holds the most memories for you? Doesn't have to be a car that you've owned. RS2 Mark II RS2000. My dad used to have. Oh, nice. He bought it new 
when I was four till about nine or ten, we had a RS2000. My dad was a farmer, and any time I usually had with my dad was basically going to rallies in the RS2000 or going on Sunday drives. Um, so yeah, the RS2000, I really enjoyed it. And my dad liked to get sideways and go fast, so that also helped. <laughs> Your dad sounds like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's going to be my Nova. Um, the one that I currently have is actually my dad's old one. And the one that I had before was my mine slash my dad's old one. But when we both had them at the same time, we used to go out on the odd scalp around the hills and stuff. And mine was the 1.2 carb. It was coilovers and whatever. Mine was always slightly faster. His was 1.4 injection, mm-hmm. but it was slower um, and standard suspension. But with mine being slightly faster and lowered... But my dad was a much better driver than I was. We were fairly evenly matched and it was great crack. Yeah, pushing two small power, small capacity cars, the limits is fun. Like that, I mean, that's my ideal. It's, you know, big power and big this and turbo that and going fast in a straight line and all. That's all brilliant. But a small underpowered shitbox Nova on its limits to it's me fun. is much more fun than you know holding back easily doing 200 miles an hour that you know that's a thrill but it's not as much and raking around mountain roads yeah with dad was that was great (laughs) so yeah that's gonna be mine Connor, what about you mine's probably not a car mine's actually a van it's the old azuzu vans i can't remember if they're wfr or wrf and they're a bit like a toyota highest type thing in the late 80s my dad drove them because he was a builder Dad had, he had sporty, he had like quattros and things like that growing up before, well, as he was growing up and he had old fates and things like that, that he rallied. And then I suppose when he started the business and he had to get more sensible, he sold sold the cars and bought the vans. But we went everywhere and I actually learned to drive. Well, I kind of learned to drive in my mum's Yugo, but I learned to drive as well in these old column chains vans. And we had been out shooting and I had to walk maybe like, I was only maybe six at the time maybe five, and he sent me like a mile or more away to lift the van and give me the keys and I had to stand up in it, rest my ass against the seat. And he, the instructions were, <laughs> don't come out of first gear. So I had to like put it into first, let the clutch out, get her going across the stubble fields. And like, I, it's funny, I can actually still smell, the, like he had two or three of those vans and they all smelt the same, probably like timber and all the products he'd been yeah. using and building. I can still smell those vans, which is weird. That's that would be the memories it holds for me. I actually crashed one through a, a fence as well when I was literally a child because for some strange reason, being the responsible parent he was, he left me in the van one Saturday while him and his mate were, I don't know if they were working at a dog pen or something, so they thought we'll lock him in the van. And I let the handbrake off and rolled it through a fence. Oh, nice work, Connor. Thankfully, they were a relative. <laughs> <laughs> was Benny Hill music playing in the background? It might as well have been like... <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, next question is from Anthony under slash M85. He says, best road trip route and what car? Any stories of fun road trips the three of you have had? I don't think the three of us have had many road trips together, have we? Not really. Um, Just southern shows. Maybe we went to Fitted, but that was just basically come off the boat at oh. Manchester and driving our... Yeah, that was when I turned the, the VR6 into a VR5, then into a VR4. Yeah. That's right. Well, um. I, well, one of my favourite road trips when I, I was 15, um, it was a family holiday around the Highlands of Scotland. Mm-hmm. It was in my dad's Mark II GTI Golf. It was a week. 
that was a one of my favorite road trips with a family anyway so it was Lee and I have done a, a lot of road trips and with a lot of friends and say yourself included we've done all the southern shows and all together some of the more fun recent ones we've done was that like day trip over to Scotland yeah that was yeah, good that, I, I would say Stan I'll keep doing that because they are they are great value it was ridiculous Just, how much was it for a car and two people 40 quid 35 quid yeah. with yeah. a passenger I think and jump across first boat day return and yeah. hammer the crap out of the car around the Scottish roads and then back again um, if you're good, if you're good and don't stop too much, you can go up around Glasgow and Edinburgh and then skirt back home again. Yeah, if you plan it really well, we we didn't plan it very well and we just had a good day. Right? Like, but no, it was good. It was good fun. If they do any anytime soon, I'm going to take the jet over and try and get an MOT. Aye, yeah, kill two birds yeah. once. Was the question about roads or road trips? Well, he said he said first of all, best road trip route and what car or any fun stories. So in recent years, the best road trip was probably the Drive to Players Classic. You done a good trip down there. Yeah, we, I think I talked about it in episode one, but it was basically I took the Mark Five over in the boat to Liverpool, and then drove down through the middle of England, stopped in at Caffeine Machine, stopped in at Stealth Racing, should have stopped in Bicester Museum, you know the Heritage Museum. Yeah, didn't have time, and then we went down to the South England near Goodwood, and we found about an hour out, we found these great hill and dale roads. Basically, we came off the waterway, and it was just stunning scenery. Then we're done the weekend at, at the show. It's a lovely part of the world down there. Yeah, it's beautiful. We headed back up, right the way back up through uh, to Scotland to get the Cairn Ryan boat home. That's probably one of my favourite road trips in recent years, anyway. What about you, Lee? We've had that many over the years, it's hard to say. I'm trying to think of any interesting anecdotes. Did we ever tell the story about the pheasant? No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Those weren't exactly good driving roads, they just like motorways, but yeah, yeah when they get wiped out by a pheasant in the motorway. Even that same trip, coming back over the mountains in Wales is brilliant. Yeah, it was lovely. That was a nice drive unless somebody stops dead in the middle of the road, which I think I have talked about yeah, before. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, if you're ever going to Ultimate Dubs from Dublin, Hollyhead, across Wales, you can go the motorway. I think on the road back one time, we came through the mountains and it was unbelievable. Nice, really well, like brilliant tarmac roads, super smooth, but nice tight twisty stuff you can really push the car on. Um, you're, you're basically going through the Snowdonia, Snowdonia country my geography Park, wouldn't you? be great, but you're probably right. Yeah, it's like, is that be like Northern Wales? North yeah. Wales. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, it was brilliant. Sadly, I was only driving a 1.4 Vento, so it wasn't exactly setting the world on fire. But <laughs> yeah, but here you can still push it to its limits. But yeah, if you ever if you're going that route, or even if you're going that route from there to Ultimate Dubs, or even that way to Fitted, if you're going from the south to Fitted, you could still take that same route, and it's they're brilliant roads. It's so so nice. Roads I would always itself. go Dublin Hollyhead, yeah, no matter where I was going. Boat. See that fucking Liverpool boat? It is the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I despise <laughs> it. Like literally, I think one of the first, or I kind of, it's like I think a prison we boat went to addition one year. Do you remember? Is. It's like a famine boat. And uh, <laughs> we weren't in charge of booking the boats, and we left it to somebody else, which was foolish in the first place. But they booked <laughs> this fucking Liverpool boat. And I was like, right. What were you so, saying about Connor about Lee being a control freak? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well we'd been on the boat for i'm sure at least three or four hours at this stage and i went out onto the deck and i looked to my left and i could still see belfast yeah <laughs> and i was just like i will never take this boat again this is the worst thing ever it's not as bad at night because at least you can get a cabin and go for a snooze but see doing it during the day it's just torture 
It is mental torture. I done it once and swore I'd never do it again, no matter how much extra it cost. I think there's a pedal underneath it. And there's a guy just pedaling away. It's awful. I think there's four engines on it, and for the day sale, they just put it down to one. Put one on her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, he mentioned road. I think one of my favorite roads. Okay, everybody has their favorite local roads, but I find that the road from Larne, the coast road up to Portrush. But the key to it is. Go either a quiet day, like a Sunday evening or morning, or go very early in the morning to avoid traffic so you can, in the exclamation marks, enjoy it properly. <laughs> yeah, I had it. Like, my old Mark II was a 1.3, 55 horsepower, and we had a good day. Do you remember? The, it was actually the day we found the Nova partsley, but yeah. like, I hammered the life out of it. We had, I, it was a, it's a lovely, smooth road, and the views are brilliant. Like. We, we stuck Metallica's Death Magnetic album on, and I <laughs> drove that thing as hard as I could. <laughs> I, I, did you get up to 50 mile an hour, did you? I think it was about 48, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever horsepower was left in it was all used, but yeah, it was, it was such fun. And those are the kind of roads, so good roads like that, it doesn't really matter what you're driving. You know, If it's big power or not, you're going to enjoy it. I've, I've actually been talking with other friends that this year it's, it's looking like shows are toast. Yeah. Great significance. But I think this year, maybe try and get away for a night or two and just do a good drive around Ireland, but go go hit some of the best roads and stay overnight somewhere or something like that, I think is maybe on the cards. Yeah, you look at some of the Circuit of Ireland roads, like in, down around the Ring of Kerry and things like that, and they're amazing. Well, I'll be reliving some memories. My dad used to drag me down, you know, to rallies. Yeah. Around Waterford, Wexford, Kerry, stuff like that. So it'll be bringing back a few memories too. That's brilliant. Yeah, there's some nice roads down there. I could recommend a few, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. You're the, the road <laughs> And places to there. stay. <laughs> Next question from Glennon1275, which I believe is Paul, who did a lockdown log with us there in the week. That's it. Yep. Big thanks to Paul. Um, he says, first question is, can I get some free stickers? Nope. <laughs> he doesn't deserve oh, any free. And his second question is, closest to being caught by the police, what were you doing and what were you driving? Well, I was caught by the police and I went to court, so I suppose this is a story I can tell. Um, I undertook a line of cars on the hard shoulder of the motorway driving a one liter 50 horsepower corsa um <laughs> one of them turned out to be an off-duty cop and that went really well in court excellent yep <laughs> yeah and you were still in your r plates i was yeah. just out of my arm or just off your yeah. plates. i have many stories about getting caught by cops but it's nearly caught by cops paul is looking for yeah, yeah nearly caught by cops i'm trying to think of one myself um, i don't have a great record of being caught by cops down south no, I you don't. Spent, I nearly spent a night in the sales down south in Carlo. That's days. right. And a CRX, um, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah. <Damn laughs> Japanese cars. <laughs> I think one of my earliest sort of, well, I've got quite a few when I was younger, but one one that makes me laugh the most was I used to have a Polo GT, a Mark III Polo GT, so quite a nippy wee thing, four branch exhaust, intake, chip, stuff like that there. And my friend, will not name his name for legal reasons, but it rhymes with Mamie Bergerson. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't imagine who that is. He, uh, at the time, had a pretty well-tuned Ibiza GTI. Yeah, I remember it well. And we're over in Bangor for the usual um, Sunday night cruise, you know, head over on a Sunday night and head home. Do you know the road from Bangor to Newton Ards, Jill Carriageway? Yep. There's a slight bend on it before you head up the hill. So we came out of the 40s and just accelerated very hard, you know, just went for it. And... Uh, I remember looking across at Jimmy. <laughs> Sorry, Mimi, <Mimmy>, not Jimmy. <laughs> 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 and he was doing 
he was going past me. Obviously, his car is much quicker than mine. Yeah. As he's going past, he was pretending to paddle a kayak. As you do. <laughs> so I was laughing my head off. Then I happened to look past him on the other side of the carriageway. And there was Traffic Branch, who had just pulled in a speeder heading the opposite direction. Fantastic. I seen the policeman just looking over with the mouth open. It's like something out of Smokey and the Bandit. Yep. <laughs> and there's that, there's that split second where you go, should I slow down? Should yeah, I just keep just going? <laughs> Will I be able to get away from him in my Polo GT? Will he be able to get turned and come back? So uh, I was sort of screaming at Jimmy, police, police, because he hadn't seen it. Yeah. And uh, he started laughing and going, oh, look out there. And uh, yeah, so we gunned it up the hill. And I sort of went, right, I've got to hide somewhere. So I nipped into the first estate on the left and basically rolled down the hill and drove into somebody's driveway, turned the lights <laughs> off and sat there. And uh, I must have sat there for about two months. And then somebody out of the house came out and asked, are you all right? And I says, oh, I'm looking for number 64. Of <laughs> <Yeah>. course. <laughs> <laughs> By the stage, I assumed the police weren't coming for me. Yeah. So uh, I gingerly went back out onto the road and headed home quickly. Well, not too quickly. <laughs> there was one night we were in we were in Lurgan and it was one like around Christmas time. I was in dad's Jeep at the time. And of course, anything four-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, and there's snow on the ground, I'm out. One of the industrial states down where Jolly's is. This is going back right a few years now. So we're all down, like, doing handbrake turns and donuts and stuff in the snow. Everyone kind of, we kind of stopped. We went out for about an hour or more. And then everyone cleared off. There was myself, Brian, in the Jeep with the pickup. And Patty was in with his brother Dan and his Astra. And we were sort of hanging about afterwards going, oh, should we go get something to eat or what's going to happen here? And then the police come in. I sort of thought, well, we've stopped now. There's nothing happening. What are they going to say? So they pulled in and says, oh, we're here. There's a bit of carrying on down here, lads. And we're like, no. I was like, <laughs> well, what are you doing down here? And I was like, oh, this guy's doing handbrake turn- turns in town there. So we're just down here out of the way, keeping out of the way. And if you looked around you, the place was an absolute bomb site of tire marks and deep snow. And there was snow all over. Was, was that? there a halo hovering above you as you were saying that? Of course, <laughs> I yeah, my innocent voice on, the big eyes open, and the guy was not impressed, like, and he was like, give me your license and all, and then he, Brian was beside me as a passenger, and he took his license, and I was like, oh, this is going to go well. And for some reason, he went to Patty's car, gave me my license back, went to Patty's car, and the other guy got out of the car and come to me, and he says, have you insurance in this? And he says, yeah, it's my dad's, insured for his work vehicle for anyone. He just went, all right, then on, got back into the car and left me alone, and Patty got grilled for about 20 minutes. Yeah, that's happy enough. <laughs> but I think the the best part of that story is if you looked at the borbots on Patty's car, yeah, they the dish was packed full of snow. About four so inches of dish, like... solid with snow. <laughs> it was like a kid. It was like a kid had just ate chocolate cake with crumbs all around his back. <laughs> yeah, was that you? No. <laughs> I haven't really any of those. I'm afraid. Um, touch wood, whether I'm just lucky or not. But I I did used to get stopped by the police all the time. And I think the main reason was, well, A, I was driving a Nova, so they probably assumed it was stolen. And B, because my name's Lee, but it's spelt in what most people assume is like the boy's way of spelling it. It's spelt the boy's way. Is uh, they used to bring up their ANPR or whatever for the name of the insured person or whatever. And then when they saw it was Lee and it was a girl driving, they used to stop me all the time. And as soon as they asked my name and I told them, they looked very sheepish and buggered yeah. off <laughs> oh it is you <laughs> yeah you. but it used to happen to me you know at least once a fortnight i just got stopped and who, who are you is this your car blah 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 yes it is i'm lee all right 
uh, okay, go about your business. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Uh, of course, you were very courteous. Yeah. Always. <laughs> um. Next question from Ronan H21. He asks, whose car will be finished first, mine or Connor's? I'm going to say yours, Ronan. Yeah, I would say Ronan's too. <laughs> <laughs> and he also I asks... Say, I would say Connor, Connor will have another car bought or two before he finishes the Mark III. Oh, yeah, more than likely. Still trying to buy my Mark II back. Uh, another one from Ronan. He says, why are there no 07K engines in Europe? They sound class. Yeah. Well, funny you should mention that, Ronan. <laughs> there nearly was. We had a long conversation about this last Sunday night, I think it was, me and Connor, when one came up for sale and... Yeah, one of our listeners. Of course, Victoria. I did the usual devil on the shoulder going, go on, buy it, do it, buy it, do That's it. That's <laughs> the American 2.5. Yeah, 2.5, five-cylinder, a bit like the TTRS engine, only without a turbo on it. Um, we don't get them here. We don't get them in Europe. They sound so good. They're absolutely bulletproof. I say one of the listeners, Kyle Poirier, he lives beside Corey Sterling, who was on the lockdown logs. He was breaking one, and I jokingly said to him and Corey, I was like, Corey, nip across to your neighbours, box that up and ship it over. And then it kind of spiralled out of control. He was like, you should buy that thing. And then when I actually looked at the cost to get it into a car, it was absolutely colossal. It was going to be like three or four grand upwards to get it bolted in, wired, you know, have it sitting how I wanted it compared to the fact that I have the 24 valve sitting to go in. And I was like, I, this is just madness. You won't need to do enough for the sake of it. So I had to knock that in the head. Would have been cool though. Stand away from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lee, stand away from me. She is the temptation. <laughs> that's what that's what you call, um, what is it? Not an inhibitor. Uh, enabler. Enabler. Yeah, said. that is Lee. Like I, <laughs> most of my bad decisions come I'm from afraid. Lee. I am. Like a I'm a feeder. I'm an enabler. Yep. <laughs> Or most people have to ask permission for the wife. I just have to try and avoid her because she's going to tell me to do it. <laughs> YOLO, folks. YOLO. Indeed. <laughs> uh, last question then is from Jerry Lav 89 He says, finally up to date with the podcast. Really enjoying it, folks. Thanks very much. Jerry. Jer- Jerry's been doing some serious push-ups for lockdown here, the 25 push-ups a day challenge. He actually has, yeah. He yeah. went from... What he looked to be seriously struggling at the start, and now he's absolutely beasting them out. Yeah. I think he was pushing them out, and like, you know, like Instagram lets you do like videos every so often, like in like time slots. I think he's went from doing like two or three time slots, he has them all down in the one slot now, which is impressive going. Yeah. I could do with a few myself. <laughs> <laughs> so he continues I'm in the same boat as Sean Maynard in that I'm partial to an estate. If you had to drive any estate from the VAG stable, what would it be? And if it wasn't VAG, what estate would you pick just so Lee can talk about the Galant again? (laughs) (laughs) He has been listening. (laughs) Oh dear, am I becoming predictable? Very. (laughs) VAG. I've always talked about an RS6, but I had an RS6 for a week. My friend actually lent me his um, 2014 one. Which is for sale currently. Yeah. So if anybody's got 37 grand spare... Give us a shout. Up. I had it for a week while he was away on holiday. He kindly lent me to it. Awesome, awesome piece of machinery. But like, I had a C5 RS6. There's still the same sort of DNA there. It's just a big, massive, enormous machine. If I was going RS, it would, I think I would probably go with an RS4 instead of an RS6. Something a bit more nimble. Yeah, I think more of a driver's car. That was your, it, your main gripe with the RS6, was it? You know, for the roads that you live on and what you normally drive, you like a sort of a bit of a back road blast, isn't it? I just think there's a bit of disconnection from the driver in the the RSs for some reason. You lose the feeling. Um, 
there must be just I don't know too much driver aid or whatever you want to call it. If I was going non-vag, it would be a C sixty three AMG estate. Yeah. Oh, I love those. They sound so good. So class. It would have to be in black. <laughs> one of our neighbours has one. I don't think it's an estate. In fact, I think it might be a convertible. Yeah, they did change it there recently. The, the saloon, now they think they're into a convertible. And he comes up and down our road about 10 o'clock at night. Just, it sounds like the hammer's a fuck. It sounds amazing. Yeah. It's just pure thunder. Yeah. We, we have single glazed windows. You hear every pound of it. It fucking rattles the windows. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's so good. It's one of those, what you hear a tractor come past, you're like, oh, I'm sick of this. Then you hear that come past, you're like, oh, brilliant. What about you? Vag. I don't really know. Do you know what I really like? I like I like a Mark Six estate with sleeves staring near, at me. I nearly bought one of them, but see the rear end of them? They make me just shudder. I don't know what it is about them. There's a guy, Timbo, on Instagram, and he's in, I think he's in Connecticut, and he had a really nice thing. It was white, it was bagged, and it just was such a simple, nice-looking driver, like a daily driver. Although Robin done one for a guy, do you remember the Mark Seven GTD estate, the red one that was bagged? last year and it was stunning i don't and like when i actually looked at the spec of the car it wasn't you know it wasn't like a like a golf r estate or anything like that it was just a normal golf but it was just such a really nice looking thing non-vag yeah non-vag hmm what would i go for estate galant no not galant uh do you know what i really like even e- E46 M3, rip it out of the Heritage factory in Munich. I do like an E30, I like, I like an E36 M, or an E36 oh, turn. Yeah. I'm a big fan of those. They're so good. Yeah, that, or if I went to scratch the, the old Jap pitch, an Evo 9 estate. Fuck you, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> or Skyline, you can get Skyline estates, can't you? Oh no, they're Legacy. a stager. The Legacy's Stages nice too, yeah, mm. it's a stager, and then the guys put the R34 front on them, but yeah, they're nice too. Uh, There's a lot of nice stuff out there. What would you like? Too, too much temptation. There is. I'll tell you what I wouldn't drive. A Mark III estate. I hate those. You love Mark III. <laughs> I do love Mark III's, but the only thing they're good for is cutting down into a pickup. I don't mind a Mark III estate, to be fair. Yeah. Um, probably to no one's surprise, it would be a Galant VR4. Although I was actually going to surprise people by saying an Evo 9, but you've already said that. They're nice. Um, Vag-wise... I do like all the Audi RS models. Yeah. There's just such road presence and stuff. Even the B5, was it the RS4 that they done the yellow and the Amola yellow? I don't really like yellow, but N- they are cool in yellow. They're one of the few. Right, so what do you call the, your guy that has the it does clean fest? Is he the yellow? Is it a B5? It's a red one. You talk about Stuart Grey? I thought it was yellow. Maybe it's a different one I'm thinking Oh, no, of. sorry. Is Mark V is red? Yes, sorry. Is... is uh... S4 B5s, yellow. Is it an S4? That thing is lovely. Yeah, yeah it's dropped yeah. over the magnesium Sorry, it's an BBSs. It's an, R- it's an RS4. Yeah, it shows you how much I know about them, but yeah, they're really nice. Yeah. Or a Golf R estate, because I just really we like were, them. We yeah. were chatting to him at CleanFest last year. Anybody that's considering a B5 RS4, basically don't. <laughs> I, I haven't considered one, and even I know to stay clear of them, they're a disaster. They are, they, they, we're t- talking to Stuart probably for about 15 to 20 minutes about the topic. Everything goes wrong with them. You could completely check out a car before buying it and turbos have been changed, the clutch has been changed, this has been done, it's a perfect car. And a year later, bang, they're they're just they're just such a bad car for running costs, basically. Were they like that from New Year or is this an age thing with them? I think it's an age thing, to be honest with you. Yeah, because they're bound to be all, what, kind of 20-year-old plus? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, it's such a good looking car though. They've aged really, really well. But the, the, the RS4, it's a, like the RS4 is basically an evolution of that engine. You know, bigger intercoolers, bigger turbos. Yeah, it's just built on the, it. The same problems, obviously. So. Oh, really? Oh, no. Yeah. Avoid. So if you are going <laughs> to buy one, make sure you have about 10 or 15 grand spare to fix it with. It's, I think, I don't think if he said it, but he, it's basically like an, an old 911, basically. Just yeah. You have to be prepared to dig deep. You just know what's going to happen, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Well, that's all the questions. Thanks very cool. much, everybody, as that's always. Good. Yeah, some that's good some ones really, there. Really good questions there. Enjoyed that. So, yeah, I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode then. Is any closing statements? Anybody want to say anything before we go? Or? Paper uh, between I the hedges. I'd like to say something <laughs> deep and meaningful, but uh, um, I'm just lost for words, really. Me too. It's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this will be out slightly later than our normal time this week. If you're if you're waiting on it coming out, you'll know. It'll probably be Friday. It is late. Yeah. <laughs> if you're late like Jerry there and catching up, you'll not care. You'll not know what's happening. So there we go. <laughs> as always, keep in contact with us, folks. Facebook, Instagram, our own Instagrams as well. Collectively, you can find us on both Facebook and Instagram at Reload Podcast. On Instagram, I'm at Connor McCann. I'm at MaxwellHouse46. And I'm at VDubBoy. Excellent. Thank you very much, folks, and see you again. Bye. Yep. Cheers. Bye. Thank you.